Binge Mode is presented by Bud Light. Bud Light is all about bringing friends together. And we're wondering which unlikely pairs will team up this season, seeing so many old friends and new come together. For example, this past episode, we saw Sansa and Tyrion grasping hands in the crypts of Winterfell, which, surprise, surprise, are full of dead people. Not the safest place! Bud Light is reminding you to enjoy responsibly. 21 and up. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. What a terrifying thought. It wouldn't work without the adult content. Why not? Well, binge mode also contains spoilers. Your divided loyalties would become a problem. Yes, without spoilers, there'd be no problem at all. We'd all be dead already. And now, binge mode. I know you. I know I know you. He said we'd meet again. And here we are. At the end of the world. He said I'd shut many eyes forever. You were right about that too. Brown eyes, green eyes, and blue eyes. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode Game of Thrones. Oh. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today... Now that he's finished fetching more arrows for Theon. <laughs> he had, honestly, he had plenty. There were several barrels there. There was a lot of arrows. Not enough. It was a lot. It's Ringer Senior Creative and your maester, Jason Concepcion. Mal, you're a good co-host. Thank you. And thank all of you for joining us at Binge Mode Game of Thrones. We hope that you subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us seven pointed stars for reading, five stars for binge mode reviews. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to explore how you debate whites in the library. Now, excuse me, I'm going to go into the Ravens now. Goodbye. Please head over to ringer.com slash shop to check out our brand new binge mode merch, including not even a Mace or Protect Ghost, Knights of Summer Tees, binge logo hats, and a new crew neck sweatshirt ideal for an overnight stay in the Godswood. It's not even going to be overnight. It's going to be like an hour. And please <laughs> join us at the third annual Con of Throats. Yes. Which is coming to Nashville, Tennessee, Musicland this summer, July 12th through 14th. Celebrity guests include Nikolai Costar Waldo. Wow. Lannister. John wow. Bradley, Samuel Tarley. Woo! With more coming soon. Yeah. Full weekend day passes and special Valerian passes are available now at conofthrones.net. So get your passes now and come warg with us. Last time on Binge Mode, we explored how embracing life in the face of death shaped season eight, episode two of Game of Thrones. The lovely A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. And today, we're diving deep. Uh, deep. <laughs> wow. Into the third episode of season eight, the 80 minute highly anticipated and divisive ultimately Battle of Winterfell the longest episode in Game of Thrones series history 
After you listen to this, be sure to check out all of the other Thrones offerings on various Ringer platforms, including Talk the Thrones with us and Chris Ryan, live on Twitter right after the East Coast Aryan Game of Thrones ends on Sunday nights. Ask the Maester and Ask the Maester live on Tuesdays. Zach Cram and Riley McAtee's pre-capables preview pod every Friday. And so much more. So many great pieces on the site. Check it all out. As always, speculation and spoiler warning. We will be going deep on details from the show and the books alike from this episode and this season and all that came before it. So meet us in the Godswood, because it's time to break down Season 8, Episode 3, The Long Night. Mal, do you speak their tongue? Tell them to lift their AirPods and brighten their monitors, because it's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened. The Battle of Winterfell by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road. At Winterfell, where we will be for the entire episode, battle preparations are over, and all that can be done has been done. The enemy is here. A figure rides out of the darkness, Melisandre. She makes an incantation with the power of R'hllor, lights the aurochs of the Dothraki cavalry afire. Jorah and Ghost, together, nearly killing me on the spot, lead the Dothraki charge. But the Dothraki are overwhelmed. Only a few survivors return to the lines. Jorah, who we see, and Ghost, who we see in the episode four preview, thank God, are thankfully among them. Danny, alarmed at the extinction of her loyal cavalry, mounts Drogon and flies off to flame the army of the dead, just as is threatens to overwhelm the infantry, including Grey Worm and the unsullied Brienne, Jamie, Podrick, and Jorah. Bells for the Dothraki people! Screams! Horse hooves! Very tough. Not great look for Awful. many involved. Awful stuff. John adds Rhaegal's flames to the effort. And as he banks over the battlefield, he sees the White Walker generals by the tree line. But before he can engage, a great storm whites out the battlefield. Arya gives Sansa a dragonglass blade and tells her to go down into the crypt. Stick him with the pointy end. Ed dies after saving Sam. Bells for Ed. And in fact, Isaac, if you would indulge us, farts for Ed. Because famously, Ed said, if the gods wanted people to have dignity, they wouldn't have made them fart when they die. (laughs) Wow. Tough look for my guy, Ed. Overwhelmed, the infantry retreats into Winterfell as the Unsullied hold the line at the cost, the unnecessary cost. Completely unnecessary if you fight behind the trench. Of many lives. After several attempts to light said trench fail, Melisandre once again calls on the Lord of Light and succeeds. The dead, for the moment, halt. In the godswood, Theon apologizes to Bran for taking Winterfell, pillaging it, and putting numerous of its servants, including Sir Roderick and Maester Lewin, ultimately to the sword. Bran says, it's fine, my guy. It's cool, dude. (laughs) Forgive and forget, even though I'm the world's memory. And then wargs into a flock of ravens. Bran locates the Night King, who is at Winterfell, and is ordering his whites to move on the trench. The army of the dead's numbers breach the trench, and the assault on the walls begins. Winterfell's defenders simply can't keep up. Arya joins the fray as the hound's courage falters, and Lyanna Mormont falls, taking on an undead giant and taking it with her to the grave. Incredible. Bells! For Lyanna Mormont, the Lady of Bear Island! Bear roars! We stand a legend, always. 
High above the fray, Viserion and the Night King engage with Danny and John. A stunning visual sequence, but then quickly disappear into the clouds. Sansa and those sheltering in the crypts become aware that the castle is overrun when the cries of the living screaming for entry into the crypts is silenced by the dead. That's a haunting moment. Yeah. In the library, another haunting moment, Arya eludes a gang of whites and flees into a hallway. Interesting to hear Miguel Sapochnik talk about how this episode was broken basically into three genres. Yeah, genres. Monster movie, horror, action film. This is the horror sequence. Barrack and the Hound find Arya, and the three escape to the Great Hall. Barrack, mortally wounded, at last, dies, like, for real this time, after having bought time for the others to escape. Bells! For Barrack Dondarrion. Seven bells! Lord. Seven bells for the seven deaths of Barrack Dondarrion! Uh, Mel's there, too. <laughs> Just chilling. Hanging out. Calling back to her prophecy in season three. She tells Arya she will close many eyes. Brown eyes, green eyes, and blue eyes. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Arya rushes off. Jon and Rhaegal take on the Night King and Viserion in a brutal battle. Spectacular visually. Unreal. Danny and Drogon sweep in to help, and the Night King is thrown from his mount. Jon and Rhaegal crash to the ground. Very worried about Rhaegal after this episode. Poor baby. Danny locates the Night King. And we learn that he is, in fact, impervious to dragon flame. He lets us know with a little smirk a little after he emerges. As John closes in, the Night King raises the army of the dead. Down in the crypts, dead Starks begin clawing their way out of their ossuaries to attack those sheltering. As things go from bad to worse, Tyrion and Sansa prepare to die. Who saw the dead bodies rising from the crypt? Everyone honestly. but them. <laughs> Danny is thrown off Drogon when whites overwhelm the groundbound dragon. But Jorah, dear sweet Jorah, saves her from the horde. Jon fights his way through Winterfell toward the godswood, but he's halted when Viserion, half his face and neck torn away, crashes into the castle. In the godswood, Theon makes his last stand. When the Night King appears, Bran tells Theon that he's a good man. <laughs> you know, sure. And Theon charges the Night King with a spear. The Night King grabs that spear, turns it around, and shoves it through Theon's stomach, killing him. Bells for Theon Greyjoy, our brother, now and always. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get some crashing waves. Yeah. Theon died far from the sea. All seems lost. John is about to die by the flames of Viserion. Brienne, Jamie, Podrick, Sam, and Tormund are seconds away from being overwhelmed. Man. Jorah, mortally wounded, fights desperately next to Danny. Uh. And then, as the Night King approaches Bran, is, is that, that Arya's music? <laughs> Arya Stark of Winterfell leaps out of the darkness and using the deft hand-switching trick that she displayed when she sparred with Brienne and probably brushed up on while watching The Last Jedi. <laughs> takes out the Night King, sticking the cat's paw dagger right in to the Night King's heart. The Night King falls, as do all of his walkers. Viserion, a little dragon squeal for my dude. He died already, but it's marked Seconds. again. Yeah. And all of the whites. But, oh God, don't say it. I'm not ready to hear it. So does Jorah Mormont. Bells for Jorah Mormont. The sound of my tears. He died as he lived. 
It's a beautiful death for Jorah. Really is. Wanting to protect Danny, but not getting it in. <laughs> Melisandre, her work done, takes the fucking coward's way out. Honestly. Wait, come on. Let Davos kill you, Mel. Oh you my. know you deserve it. Takes off her enchanted choker for the final time, walks into the dawn light, ages, and dies. The shrieks of Shireen Baratheon burning to death for Melisandre. And some bells. Mel was important to the story. Complicated, but important. And with that, the Great War is over. We are one. Jason, that's why we're down here in this podcast studio. None of us can do anything. It's the truth. It's the most heroic thing we can do now. Look the truth in the face. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it. And Zarya reminded us by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of The Long Night is Last Stand. So we want to do things just a touch differently today, given the unique nature of this episode of Game of Thrones and the unique nature of the discussion around it. Mm -hmm. We're going to just keep it slightly more conversational than we typically do because we are still finding our way through some of these points. We want to navigate that together with each other and with all of you right now. So the first thing that we wanted to talk about before we get into really the plot of the episode is the execution of it with how this functioned as a viewing experience. In terms of spectacle, I don't know when we're going to see something like this on television again. An incredible cinematic experience and another masterstroke from Miguel Sapochnik, mm -hmm. who's responsible for some of the most signature episodes in series history, including Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards, Winds of Winter. He's become known kind of by the shorthand, the battle guy. I was just on the edge of my seat in terms of just the visuals. Mm -hmm. I mean, when the Aurochs of the Dothraki go up, I was like, yeah, let's go. I'm ready for whatever happens next. I'm so hyped for this. Also, I have to mention the length, 82 minutes in length. And, and the showrunners talk about this uh, quite a bit in the after the episode and the, and the game revealed featurettes. They were very aware of the fact that when you put an audience into a battle for mm -hmm. an extended period of time, that it can just wear the audience out. So they really put a lot of thought into switching gears, having those kind of masked action sequences and then drilling down into just a single character, Arya's character. And then, as Mallory noted, breaking it up into genres, having your battle genre, then your horror genre, then your action genre. Mm -hmm. There were so many images in this that, you know, kind of like took my breath away. But I think my favorite one is when Danny and John break through the top of the clouds yeah. and are just kind of hanging. That was gorgeous. One of the most <laughs> single gorgeous visuals that I think the series has given us. Yeah, that is an absolutely magnificently stunning thing right. that you actually kind of can't believe you're seeing on television. Yeah. And, you know, before that, when they're first on the dragons and they, they fly over toward the walkers and the, the wall of cold comes down and meets yeah. them, that shot of the juxtaposes the ice of the Night yeah. King's force against the fire that Danny and Drogon are still trying to rain down. And the almost, like, tornado-like yeah. uh, cones coming down from that, it was absolutely thrilling to watch. As a viewing experience, as spectacle, it was 
utterly riveting. The anxiety and the nerves of the moment mm-hmm. when you're going in, you don't know if these people are going to be okay. And it, it really was supremely terrifying. Every time you saw a character you loved in peril, you really believed oh, that, that that could be the end. And it was heart attack inducing TV. And it's pretty rare to watch something that can sustain that level of suspense and fear and emotional investment for 82 minutes, which is almost the length of a film. Yeah, I was sitting on the top of my chair, on the back of the chair, because I was just so anxious. Mallory was gripping Chris Ryan's hands like ever so tightly. Friend of the pod, Jason Manzoukas, texted us afterwards like, oh my God, I was standing the whole time and it's like, totally agree. I think it's important to acknowledge just how special what we saw was and how far this show has come. Like, I think it's kind of become wrote to be like, oh yeah, we're going to get this great battle like after Mm -hmm. Hard Home and after Battle of the Bastards that we're just going to see these things and it's normal to see this stuff on television. It is not normal. It's not normal. Think back to season one when the Battle of Whispering Wood took place off screen. You know, Tyrion rushes, charges into battle, gets knocked out and then everything happens while he's unconscious Mm -hmm. because the idea of filming a multi-million dollar pitched battle as part of your, not even like as the culmination of your season, as part of your season, this is not something that anyone thought would be possible Mm -hmm. in the medium. Mm -hmm. Forget about for the show, in the medium of television before this. And now we're just like, yeah, show me it all. Give me everything. (laughs) It's normal now. Right. The complaint that has become very prevalent after the episode, so prevalent in fact that the cinematographer has responded. I think it's a fair complaint. Is the darkness. So let's chat about that for a moment because many people just said that they couldn't see what was happening. So all of the things that we're describing, you have a whole swath of the fan base out there saying, basically, like, I didn't get to appreciate that. The other critique is that the battle, which was, even with the breaks that we've described, very prolonged and very extensive, was disorienting, that it was hard to figure out where you were, what direction you were looking in, how close these characters were to each other. And I think probably some of that is stylistic and some of that is that one informs the other. If right. the screen is really dark and it's hard for you to pick up on details, you're going to struggle with your orientation. We turned our brightness up all, all the, way, the way, all the way, preemptively, all the way. Yeah. anticipating this. And yeah, even so, it, it was hard to see. And I, I do think it's valid to say that that takes you out of it a little bit if you're expecting something fully immersive and you have to keep pausing to say, wait, what was there? What was there? This is supposed to be cinematic, but it can't be for everyone. So does that mean that the approach should change to account for how most people are viewing it? Or It's an interesting question. Is it they should be giving us the absolute highest value and highest quality version of what they're attempting to produce that they possibly can? And then it's up to us to figure out how to consume it. I think as you noted, the cinematographer Fabian Wagner came out and said essentially— It's not too dark, I know, because I filmed it. Right. While I understand where he's coming from and fair play to him, he's an expert. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, essentially, about cinematography. I think that's real. Mm -hmm. You also have to kind of bow to the realities of the way people, one, watch TV and content now on various devices at various times in various places. And two, when a lot of people are saying a thing, Mm -hmm. at some point the customer is correct that they couldn't see it. I watched it when I got home from Talk to Thrones on Sunday night. I watched it again using the app and found it much crisper and easier yeah, to better. see when it wasn't compressed through cable or satellite or however you're consuming it. 
I think that the other aspect here to consider is the creative choice of, again, deliberate intent. There's something about the fact that this is at night. Obviously, the story demands yeah. it, the long night. As Andy and Chris said on the watch, he's not the day king. <laughs> not the day king. <laughs> Who is the day king? But it seemed like there was almost an effort to lean into that darkness in the moments where the characters and thus the viewers were supposed to feel disoriented. We're right. supposed I think to feel that that's, that's fair. totally that, at sea. And yes. then you have those moments where the fire comes in almost as a relief. It's clarifying. Okay, Melisandre lit the Iraqs. And then we see the whole force of the Dothraki horde charging. And it's almost like a lit arrow point as John and Danny watch from above. When Drogon and Rhaegal are laying down their fire on the field, when the trench goes up, all of those moments give us, the viewer, the same feeling that they give the character. Palpable relief. For them, it's because there's a glimmer of hope. For us, it's that, but also because we can see what's happening on our screen. I think the other thing to talk about in this area is the score, because the character-specific beats that we now recognize, we hear it, we know that's the Night King's music. We hear it, We know that that's the song for The Unsullied, et cetera, et cetera, on and on the list goes. That became like a life raft for orienting yourself. Mm -hmm. You could hear the musical cue and you knew that was the character. That was the thing that you were supposed to be focusing on. The Night King is about to come into my screen through this cloud, even if I can't see him yet. Even though sometimes the switch, because of the pace and the chaotic nature, again, by design of the episode, sometimes led to these, I think, more um, sudden musical shifts than we're maybe accustomed to, I found myself grateful for being able to grasp onto that and get my bearings based on what I was hearing just as much as what I was seeing. Yeah, agreed. Next, big, big, big point of conversation is the death toll here. And the idea of subverting expectations, which is an idea and a device that Thrones has utilized so well, kind of formative trait of the show. Yes. Have we already seen The Last Stand? Yeah, and have we already seen The Last Stand for subversion in this story? So did enough people die? Listen, I think we agree that we certainly expected more people to die. Mm -hmm. Grey Worm being alive right now is wild to me. (laughs) Maybe he'll see those beaches. He might get it. After all. He, like, (laughs) everybody made fun of him. Maybe the last scene of Game of Thrones will be Grey Worm and Missy sipping pina coladas (laughs) on the shores of Nath. Everybody made fun of him when he bought the uninsured tickets, and yet here he is (laughs) looking good. So it's fair to say, on the one hand, we didn't lose John or any other one a character, John, Danny, Arya, Tyrion, Jamie. Would we add Brienne to that as a 1A? Mm, I she's like a 1B, right? No. Yeah, I would put her in the group with the people we did lose. But I would, I would throw in Sansa and Bran with the people. So, Sansa and Bran, yes. And certainly we could have lost, I think if we had to pick one, I thought Arya would be the one that we could possibly lose. But I wasn't really expecting a 1A. I was also not expecting a 1A. The only one that I considered was Jamie because of the amount of time and care spent on the Jamie-Brienne arc in the prior episode. Brienne seemed like the much more likely one, but I think we both considered the possibility of subverting that expectation. But even so, it never felt like we were going to lose one of the absolute main, main players in the episode. Agreed. But I think we were both surprised that we didn't lose Brienne, didn't lose Grey Worm. Yeah. This is not to say that people did not die. I think that there's kind of like a hyperbolicness to the discourse where it's like, nobody died. I totally agree. Uh, I mean, Jorah and Theon are one beast, absolutely pivotal to the story, have been there since the beginning. Yes. 
They are, according to a total that was through season seven, so not updated to account for season eight yet, but a tally from Type A Media, Jorah and Theon are literally two of the top 10 characters in terms of screen time to that point in the story. Jorah checked in at eight, Theon checked in at 10. To lose those two characters and say that we didn't lose anyone of consequence is actually wrong. Right. Now, we also lost Melisandre, again, another Mm -hmm. pivotal character who, who was so important to our understanding of magic in this world. And... Who's really pivotal in terms of setting up the Manichaean idea of fire versus ice? We lost Beric, who did much of the same, giving us our first view of the idea that death could be conquered. Mm -hmm. People can be brought back to life. Liana and Ed, Liana came in numerous times over the past two seasons and pitched like 108 miles an hour (laughs) and just struck out everyone. And Ed, who was, you know, I loved Ed. I did expect him to go. Alice, who we don't know. We're not sure. Yeah. We're pretty sure she's dead, but it's unconfirmed. She was in the Godswood. We don't see her corpse, right. but everyone around Theon and Bran at the end there seems right. to be dead. Viserion, one of three dragons in the entire world. He was dead already, yes, but now he's gone for good. Right, out of the story. And the Night King, yes. which I think honestly is part of the issue that people have with this. Mm-hmm. The Night King, who was the existential threat since day one of the story even though he wasn't introduced until season four. Four. So killing the villain may not hurt the way killing the heroes do, but we have to acknowledge that significant characters did die in this episode. Yes. As far as the idea of subversion is concerned, three things that are worth noting and keeping in mind. One, killing the Night King in this episode, you can argue actually is subversive. That does not have to mean that it's satisfying. Those are not necessarily the same thing or that it's well handled. But it did defy expectations, right? We can't right. all go into the episode saying the living are going are gonna to lose. What will their escape plan be? Will they go to Dragonstone? Will they go to the Iron Islands? How will they get out of there? How many can fit on a dragon? There's no way they can win this fight. And then say that the outcome didn't surprise us. The fact that the show defied our expectations in this particular area while sidelining the fantasy storyline is something that is troublesome, and we're going to discuss at length shortly. Number two. At a certain point, the ability to subvert becomes impossible. We talked about this a lot in our preview podcasts right. and, and all of the discussions this that we is had an about important point. heading into the season. Yeah, this is an important point. I think it's something that uh, George struggles with as he tries to land his great story. If you build a story mm-hmm. on constantly frustrating your heroes and even killing them when people don't expect, of never quite getting that set-piece battle in which the heroes finally win in kind of breaking all these tropes, like, Mm -hmm. you know, having the the Prince Charming actually be a bad guy and having the Dashing Knight actually be a very complex person. At a certain point, as you near the end of a story, Mm -hmm. you have to break with that or you're just going to piss off a lot of people. A running joke that is within the community is, at the end of all of this, it's going to be the Night King sitting on the throne, everybody dead. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that that's a fair thing to say when you consider the totality of what George has made. At the same time, I don't think that there's anybody who could sit here and say sincerely that they would not be frustrated by that ending, even though it is thematically congruent with everything that's come before. Right. I think that the idea of consequence comes into play here. And Zach Cram wrote a great piece about this heading into season eight. Something changed when John came back, even though everybody knew it was going to happen and everybody wanted it. 
something fundamental about what we expected and what the characters, basically what they reaped for what they'd yeah. sown. That's, that's Hero's Journey 101 stuff. Exactly. So what do we actually want as a fan base? Right. And it's not up to us to decide what we get, but the question of what we even want is a little confusing. I think yeah. there's a part of us, speaking for ourselves, yes. there's a part of us that wants to see the characters we love and that we have invested this much time in be okay at the end right. of this. And then there's a part of us, the part that Thrones trained into existence, that says, fuck me up. Right. In the words of Chris Ryan, fuck me up. Right. Both of those desires are true at once. It seems like maybe the second one has become primary for a lot of people consuming mm -hmm. the show, which is actually a really interesting thing in terms of how people are thinking about the product and what people want out of culture. Number three, in this particular case, it is at least worth exploring the specific nature of Thrones' history. You know, Jason, you just laid out the larger macro history of Thrones and subversion. But specifically in the case of battles, that's actually not where Game of Thrones kills major players. It isn't. So the idea of the show kind of losing its willingness to be utterly ruthless and take down a major player is a little bit out of sync, actually, with the reality of the show. We are kind of conflating the idea of big deaths with where they tend to happen. Right. You know, let's go through just not a comprehensive list, but some of the most impactful figures that we've lost in or adjacent to a battle. You're talking about people like Stannis, Ramsay, Egret, Rickon, Viserion the first time, Thoros, the Tarleys, the Blackfish, Nim, Babaro, Olena right on the heels of a battle. Those characters are at best in terms of consequence to the story and their role, at best at the Jorathion level, and in many cases below. That's not a John Danny Arya level kill in any battle before this. It just isn't. So the deaths that earned the show its subversive label, and rightly earned it its subversive label, got there because they shocked us. Because they occurred in situations where we were not expecting characters to die, by definition. They occurred at weddings. They occurred on toilets. They occurred at seps. All of these situations and settings where we thought people were safe. Yeah. That's where the surprise and the subversion came from. The show can still give us that moving forward in the next three episodes. I think that there's an element here of not being able to properly assess what we saw here until we see the conclusion of the series. I, I agree with that. Let's if see how their characters landed. fall. Yeah. Maybe we'll feel a little bit differently. At the same time, the counterbalance to that is just as we said, you can't subvert all the way through an epic story. You have to, at some point, satisfy your audience, or risk alienating them. So this battle, the Battle of Winterfell, the Long Night, was the existential battle. Right. This was the battle to end it all. Yes, that's the obvious, not even an asterisk, just a refutation of right. the point I just made is that, well, this, this battle is wasn't than like all the any of those this other battles. This is different than all the it other It wasn't ones. intended to be, and we weren't taught to think it would be. Right. At the same time, part of the thing that people have argued about with Thrones, or one of the things that they've used to argue for some sort of shocking thing happening is, well, in this world, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. It's a brutal world. This is how it would be. And I think right. part of the disappointment with, with more characters not dying is it's a brutal world. We had numerous core characters on the ground mm -hmm. at the front lines of the battle, and they all made it right. in a fight against an enemy that just is not ever going to get tired, blah, 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 blah. Right. It's just hard to imagine a world in which they all make it. That's a great and very valid point. It reminds me of Davos's line from earlier right. in the show's run when Mel is trying to take credit for the king kills right. from the 
cock blood leeches. And he says, you know, in essence, I don't know if they're dead because of your magic or because in war people die all the time. And to have that put out as a truism in the universe, still have a lot of our major characters live through that and then position this battle as not position it. It was, it is literally the great cataclysmic battle, the long night and not lose more people or more people of consequence is certainly fair to note. I think, again, we have to ask ourselves who will ultimately fall before the series is done. That doesn't necessarily explain them making it out of the battle alive. But I think also there's a little bit of the show being a victim of its own self-generated hype in this respect. Because in the world, in the lore of the story, the long night is this severe, is this stark. We're always going to have that as an element of the story no matter what. But then when you add in the marketing campaign and the way that season eight was— entirely positioned around this It all this comes episode, down to this. Around this battle. Now, you can, I think, parse that and say, well, that's actually really exciting because yeah. we don't know. We don't know what's coming next. We right. really don't know what the next three episodes holds. There's, like, at best, maybe a couple quick shots in the main season eight trailer that we haven't seen yet. It's all going to be fresh to us. Obviously, we got an episode four preview. Putting out that The Great War Was Here poster, which showed every single character dead in the snow, creates a certain expectation. Putting out the Aftermath trailer, which showed Winterfell in ruins, a symbol that we associate with each character, you know, Needle, Jamie's Hand, the Feather, Longclaw, et cetera, et cetera, on the Brand's wheelchair, on and on the list goes, decimated and in the wreckage creates a certain expectation that ultimately— the episode did not deliver on. Whether you're happy or sad about that. You have to acknowledge that. You have to acknowledge it. And again, have to acknowledge that it's three more episodes left, so let's see what happens. I I think it's absolutely fair to air criticisms of this episode, and it's also, we also have to say, okay, well, let's see what happens in the next three episodes. There's more time. thrilling to watch. Another battle certainly awaits. We assume uh, episode five, there is, in other words, three more chances to deliver on the kind of subversive and ruthless deaths Mm -hmm. that we have come to associate with this show. Would it hurt more to lose Brienne at the Battle of Winterfell after her being knighted Mm -hmm. or actually getting out and then falling because, say, Bronn misses his crossbow shot or she steps in front of it to protect Jaime Mm -hmm. and dies that way? Yep. That's that know, one. That would be <laughs> that would that would hurt more. That you know? would be incredible. What about John having to choose between what he feels is right and the woman he loves? Yep. These are all things that are on the table for yes. the next three episodes. So yes. let's let's withhold final so, so judgment. Patience. We're so close. Mm-hmm. Let's withhold final judgment until we see those things. Agreed. Strong agreed. We are, as we said, doing things slightly unconventionally today. And part of that is before we continue with the pointy end. We're going to do what Arya did. We're going to go for that, like, little stroll through the library in the middle of things. We're going to the Citadel early, yeah. folks. Jason, the dead are already here. That's right. But their leader didn't always look this way. No, he did not. So before we get to the rest of the pointy end and discuss the specific plot in this episode in more length, in depth, please assemble the conclave. Head to the Citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about the Night's King in the books versus the Night King in the show. Ding dong, the king is dead. The White Walkers and their enigmatic leader have cast a pitch black shadow over our story since the very beginning. It's the very first scene of the very first episode of the very first season when ice demons ambush three Night's Watch Rangers, killing two, including the youngest son of our good friend and Battle of Winterfell survivor, (laughs) 
Bronzion Royce of the Vale. What was, Where were you? What was he doing? Well, yeah, what the fuck was Bronzion doing? Anyway, that raid sent the lone survivor scurrying south of the wall where he was course, executed by Ned Stark. Now, we first met the Night King in season four when a White Walker delivered Craster's infant son to the lands of always winter to be turned into a White Walker, future White Walker. And as we send the kingy off to the great ice cube tray in the sky, (laughs) it is important to remember, very crucial to remember, that the Night King, who we knew and loved, at least in the sense that we loved theorizing about him, Uh was a creation of the show, total creation of the show. Yes, there is a character from the history of the books with a similar name, the Knight's apostrophe S King, but he, if he did actually exist, was a totally different person. So who is the book version of the Night King and can we apply any of our knowledge of him to the late great King Ice Cube? In the books, the Night King, and I'll use the show's version of the character name here just to keep things clear, refers to the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch and the tale of his dark deeds are some of the North's oldest stories during the Age of Heroes, not long after the wall was completed and so possibly, possibly, within living memory of the Long Night, a particularly fearless man rose to become the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And as fearlessness, she could think of as hubris, would be, certainly in old Nan's view, his downfall. In those days, the watch was at full strength, and the order was headquartered out of the Night Fort, the largest and oldest of the castles guarding the wall. By the time of the show, the Night Fort has long been abandoned and has an ominous reputation, and much of that stems from the legend of the Night King. One day... The stories go, the 13th Lord Commander was standing guard atop the wall when he spied a pale woman in the woods on the other side. Her skin was, quote, white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Sounds a lot like a White Walker, right? Mm -hmm. The Lord Commander left his post, chased her through the woods, caught up with her, and they fucked. (laughs) And in the process, it is said he lost his soul. The Lord Commander brought his pale woman back to the Night Fort, and using dark magic, they bewitched his Night's Watch brothers and proclaimed themselves king and queen. The Night King and his pale queen ruled their evil realm from the Night Fort for 13 years until, presaging John's alliance with the Wildlings, the Stark King in the North joined forces with the Wildling King beyond the wall to bring him down. The sorcery that bound the Night's Watch to the Night King's will was broken. And after his defeat, it was discovered that he had been making sacrifices to the White Walkers, much like, we assume, Craster was in the show. This information was so perverse and troubling that the decision was made to purge all of the Watch's records pertaining to the 13th Lord Commander and even to ban the mention of his name. Very Voldemortian move. Much of the show's discourse around the Night King has been his lineage. Is he a Stark? Is he Bran Stark specifically? Is he a Targaryen? (laughs) Similarly, in the books, the ancestry of the 13th Lord Commander is a matter of much debate in the North. Old Nan, however, shouts to Old Nan wherever you are was pretty certain about who he was. Quote, some say he was a Bolton. Some say a Magnar out of Skagos. Some say Umber, Flint, or Nori. Some would have you think he was a Woodfoot from them who ruled Bear Island before the Iron Men came. He never was. He was a Stark, the brother of the man who brought him down. Now, in my view, the purging of the records and the suppression of the Night King's born name supports Old Nan's theory. If he was a Bolton, a family who the Starks have been warring with many, many, many times over the centuries, Certainly the ruling kings in the north would have been like, yeah, he was a Bolton. I'm gonna, right. Let's tell everyone. That ne- negative campaigning. Negative can't go, go negative on them because that would help. Similarly, little reason to suppress the information and destroy records if he was a Flint or a Nori or an Umber or a Skagosi. But if he was a Stark, that would be troubling. And only the Starks would have the power and influence to have Night's Watch records destroyed and a name 
suppressed from being mentioned. Additionally, the alliance with the wildlings, on the one hand, an example, and a hopeful example, of how external threats can bring peoples together. On the other hand, it would be useful for the Starks, assuming the Night King was a Stark, to have allies who live on the other side of the wall and therefore could not go talking about what they learned during this war, mm-hmm. right? And then there's this, old Nan again. He was a Stark of Winterfell, and who can say, mayhaps his name was Brandon. Maybe he slept in this very bed in this very room. Mm-hmm. So you're right. Night King is Bran Stark theories are still alive, in the books at least. Another reason for all you folks who are missing your Night King theories now Pick up those books if you're on the fence about reading them. Pick them up. They're great. And so that's the Night King from the books. Let's get back to our discussion. Let's pick up with the very same Night King. And specifically, the question of the last stand for fantasy. Sure. And the role of Bran the Night King and fantasy in this story, in Game of Thrones, the television show. You know, we can quibble about death tolls, television brightness settings, Again, we really loved a lot about this episode. We found it to be riveting television. Our primary lament is that this episode solidified the show's long-running hesitancy to fully embrace the story's fantasy elements. And let's start with The Night King and the question of what we know about him ultimately now that he's gone and whether we feel like we learned enough. Right. Here's how you would reject the claims that we didn't learn about The Night King. We learned about where he came from. We saw how he was made. We learned two episodes ago. One what episode he wanted. One episode one ago. Episode one ago. episode ago. We learned what he wanted. And what else do you want? The issue here is, as as we just said, this is one episode ago. Because the Night King appeared in season four. Could have set this up in a myriad of ways. But the, it's not just about the Night King in right. a sense. Because it's the right. Night King appears in season four, sure. But the White Walkers are there from literally the, the first beginning. scene of the show. The first scene of the show. The prologue of the show is Waymar Royce and the Rangers going beyond the wall and encountering the White Walkers. And thus, we, the viewer, learn well before most of the realm is willing to accept it that this threat is back. Right. And so 70 episodes later, that threat is eliminated. And the question of what the Night King wanted and what the White Walkers wanted, we found out one episode before they were wiped off the board. Right. That's not enough. I don't think. I, I, I don't think that. that that's sufficient. And there's no reason that we needed to wait la- that long other than the fact that the answer for what the motivation was is the other character whose magical abilities we don't know enough about, Bran. So the showrunners have said that he had to be killed by Valerian Steel to the exact spot on his body where the children of the forest made him by inserting a dragon glass blade. Where did they say that, though? I, again, in the after the episode, right. it's kind of like, uh, you know, tell, don't tell. <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> right. explain that to us. And so one of the showrunners essentially says, does it have to be Valerian Steel? I'll let you figure it out. I'll, I'm not going to say anything more, essentially paraphrasing here. Figure it out for yourself, not going to say. Which is kind of like, okay. <laughs> We talk a lot about how in a fantasy story, you have to understand the rules of the universe to be able to fully opt in. Because when magic is at play, to opt out, when you're trying to figure out how it works, if it doesn't make sense to you, it pulls you out of the story, right? So that's part of it. But then there's also, you know, to go back to your words from the season seven finale, this sense of like almost, you phrased it as an embarrassment, right? Yeah, it's kind of like we don't really want to be explaining this stuff. We don't know how. We don't want to be creating lore. Right. And so that feels just 
out of sync with the heart of the story, with what Game of Thrones is, which is a fantasy story. We're going to talk about the order of events here and how the whole season plays out and eliminating the Night King here and what that means. I'm actually not opposed to that, to eliminating the Night King here and to spending the next three episodes doing everything else that they're going to do. It's less about the timing and more about the nature and what we got along the way. So for one more example is why, once again, didn't the Night King engage in battle with John? Why didn't he fight John? And then this is when they're on the ground because their dragons do battle in the air, though ultimately that's Rhaegal and John pursuing the Night King. After the Night King escapes Danny's dragon fire unscathed and John, having landed already, is on the ground and John pursues him. The Night King gives us number three in a list that now includes Hardhome, right. when he stared John down and taunted him but did not attempt to kill him. Frozen Lake battle where, same thing, stared him down from the cliff but did not attempt to kill him. And what transpires here, it plays out, actually, this part of it is cool, as a kind of mashup, a hybrid of these two iconic moments. We get the, the arm raise right. and the body raise from Hardhome, and we get John's solo charge right. from Battle of the Bastards. That's really fun TV. But then the Night King, after he raises his army of the dead, the Winterfell dead, leaves, retreats. Why? The possibility is there. We like to talk about this. We think this has real validity. That the Night King might be a student of prophecy. Mm -hmm. Could he have potentially been actively avoiding engaging with John in this way one-on-one because he believed after, remember, he sees, remember how the look on his face as he watches John slay a White right. Walker. He's, with, he's interested in what's yes, happening. With Valerian Steel Blade at Hardhome, could he believe that John was the last hero, the prophesied savior, and thus attempted to avoid him in a he can't kill me if I don't fight him. It's way. very thematically congruent with a lot of the way prophecy is handled within the show. Yes, it would be really cool, really fitting, actually, if the Night King, just like Cersei and like so many other characters in the story, and like Voldemort and yeah. like all of these other characters in fantasy stories, is basically undone by his hubristic misinterpretation of prophecy. If that's the case, that's actually awesome. But we're just left asking the question. Yeah, one thing that... Something I really took away from The Long Night was that I'm going to kind of scale back my ambitions about what they could have in store. Mm -hmm. Simply because, like, we had all these great theories about something down in the crypts or can they get out this way? And I think that they're just charging straight line for the ending. You know, we saw the Night King, Melisandre, and Beric die. That's, like, basically three of our four links to magic just gone. And it really feels like, okay, let's close the page on this, especially when you consider the context of like the various prophecies that we've seen before, Quaith, Kinvara, Flame of Truth, where you at? And just the way like these things are kind of brought up and hinted at and just are never returned to. I think this is the exit ramp for them vis-a-vis magic. And I think they're happy to be done with it. I think that there's a significant section of the fan base too that's like, we can get back to the politics now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. But regardless of that, One thing you can say that is established about the Night King is he was arrogant, extremely arrogant. Yeah. And why would he not be? I mean, like, we know from Bran that the Night King wants to kill the Three-Eyed Raven, has tried many times before, succeeded with Blood Raven, Uh but Blood Raven had passed the baton at that point. We don't know if the Night King has to be the one to do it or if a lieutenant could. Surely, if a lieutenant could, he would have been like, just kill him if you get the chance. Mm -hmm. But it has a real... And either must die at the hand of the other, for neither can live while the other survives, kind of vibe, though, yes. as Dumbledore explained to Harry. 
the words of the prophecy didn't make it true. And Voldemort's obsession with Harry because of the prophecy and Harry's desperation to rid the world of him, who had robbed him and so many others of so much, was the thing that really did matter. Right. That's why motivation isn't just one sentence, right. one note. It's the depth behind it and how that motivation, whatever it is on the surface, informs the actions of the person who holds that motivation. What is perpetuating that fear or desire? Yeah. What is another core characteristic of this show? It's that you always hear people say, well, the characters are gray. And what does that mean? Because the show is so good at making you empathize with the, quote, bad guy. Here is the one character that we never, we never understand what he's doing. So there is something poetic and perfect about him being made and unmade in front of a weirwood tree. Clearly, this is something they were going for. The episode gave us a lot of kind of these closing the loop mirror moments of which we will discuss. And this was surely among the highlights, though, again, while that's rewarding, it falls flat. Brand's magic isn't fully tethered to the tree, as the show has shown us numerous times. He's able to go into the Weirwood network without a tree around and see things that happened in the past where no trees are present. We don't know what the Night King is thinking as he approaches the heart tree, Mm -hmm. as he's remembering his creation, thinking about how satisfying it is that he's about to end the world. We don't know what that end of the world looks like, and we'll delve into Mm -hmm. the fact that we still don't understand how the brand memory of the world thing works in a bit. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of unanswered questions as to what it is we're watching and why we're watching that. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. Oh, no. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-I-N-G-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's binge mode is also brought to you by RevTown. When we binge, we have to be comfortable. Oh, yeah. That's why we're excited to introduce binge-worthy jeans from our friends at RevTown. Before we found RevTown, we would come home, change into shorts, sweats, before putting our favorite TV show on. These jeans change everything. RevTown jeans were created by ex-Under Armour guys who use innovative fabric and Italian milled denim to make the most comfortable pair of jeans we've ever worn. When we asked how they do it, they told us... How'd you do it? ...that their jeans are made from proprietary fabric. That's strong. Gods. Gods, it was strong denim. But as a little bit of stretch... It's just like the fabric used to make football uniforms and workout clothes now in Mm. your jeans, which means you can go from work to binging 
without a wardrobe change. Head over to www.revtownusa.com slash binge mode to pick up a pair and start binging. The jeans cost a fraction of the price of designer brands. Revtown currently offers men's jeans and have their first women's line on the way this fall. And bonus, Revtown now ships internationally, so you can get them delivered to your doorstep no matter where you live. Revtown is giving a few of our listeners some free jeans. So head to www.revtownusa.com slash binge mode to sign up. That's www.revtownusa.com slash binge mode. And now, back to binge mode. As amazing as Arya's Kill Blow was again, and we will absolutely get into mm-hmm. that, it's also worth discussing that Night King has been around in the show lore, at least, for six, 8,000 years, whatever, since the long night, ostensibly sleeping, but also occasionally attacking three-eyed ravens throughout history, right? <laughs> Biding his time to wipe out humanity and the memory of the world. So it's not totally accurate to say it's literally the first time he challenged humanity. We can't simultaneously say the walkers have been a threat since episode one, scene one, season one, and say this is the first face-off. But this was the first time that the Night King got his hands dirty, got on the ground that we saw. Even in Har Home, Frozen Lake, he just watched from afar, which I think was smart because if he dies, everything fails. But he was here in this battle and he was fighting and he lost. And that just... If that feels anticlimactic to you, that's fair. Right. If the Night King had been humanized for us a little more, given these layers of depth, then that human-seeming failing that you just described might have felt understandable, truer to form. But because he's positioned as evil incarnate, as death just sweeping over the land, looking to wipe out memory, and what's part of the memory? The memory of how to destroy him, right? right? So to remain eternal, we don't have that. The showrunners have been on the record to their credit, had been on the record that this was who the Night King was. Right, he's death, that's it. He's death. He's Period. a representation of death and evil, and you're not going to get more. And it seemed like maybe misdirection, and, and you know, ultimately it actually it wasn't. The fact that the episode ends, not on the Night King's death, but on Jorah's death and then Melisandre's right. death is also just worth talking about for a second. You know, no one loves Jorah more than right. me and my sister wife, Joanna Robinson. <laughs> but... It's notable that the Night King's demise was not actually the hammer of this episode. We always appreciate a coda, you know, a little bit of time to process. But the coda wasn't processing. It was two more deaths that were ultimately in the show's eyes deemed more consequential than the Night King's. That's pretty wild. Let's contrast that with Battle of the Bastards, which ends with Ramsay getting his face eaten off. And Hardhome, which ends with that incredible visual of the Night King raising the dead and John fleeing in defeat. Yes, Great point. Very different from what we see here. Absolutely. Now, on the one hand, because this is not what the show does best and is clearly not what it's interested in doing, it feels like it's for the best, actually, that the show will be spending the final three installments geared toward its strengths and its areas of interest. And we also should note, because again, just like everything else with the idea of the death toll and the subversion and all parts of this, there's nuance. And the nuance is where the truth lives most often. The best fantasy doesn't exist apart from humanity. It explains something about our humanity. It allows us to access it, to understand it, to amplify it. The fantastical elements of a story allow the characters and the reader or the viewer to look at life and figure out what matters most, what doesn't matter at all. And then when that's gone, you have to look at yourself. 
you have to figure out what to do with who you are. The Shakespeare of Thrones Twitter feed had a really expertly laid out point this week about how very Shakespearean that sequence of events actually is. Mm -hmm. Contend with the supernatural and then contend with yourself. The human battle coming last after the Night King has been thwarted is not, by definition, a bad or offensive storytelling choice. It it really isn't, especially given how compelling all of the human drama on Game of Thrones has always been. The issue is, again, the reluctance to fully embrace the fantasy elements that helped our characters get to that point in the first place and to see each other clearly and to realize who they are. It's basically, it feels like the difference between treating fantasy as a portal or a hurdle, you know, treating it as something that can open the way or something that you just need to clear. And that difference is colossal. I think that the discarding of the fantasy elements at this point, the thing that kind of irks me about it, and again, I want to underline that I love this episode. I also love the episode. I thought it was freaking great. (laughs) An absolute, like, achievement. I think the thing that additionally irks me about it is it's so transparently part of the larger storytelling choice that was made at the end of season six that Danny was too strong and needed to be taken down. Mm-hmm. Danny comes from Essos with three dragons, right. thousands of unsullied infantry, all of the Dothraki, and the best advisors in the game. Right. She had the Tyrells at that point. Dorn. Dorn. Everybody yep. flocking to her banners. Now, Part of the Greyjoys. Yeah. So the, the issue now is Cersei's about to get washed, right? And clearly the show made the decision that, mm-hmm. okay, it's too early to lose Cersei. So we got to bring Danny down a peg. So mm-hmm. Tyrion's got to make a bunch of bad decisions. The fleet has to be destroyed. They never get to Dorne. The Reach gets taken out. Mm-hmm. They have to go do bad plan at which she loses a dragon. <laughs> then they have to go north and fight the Night King. And when they emerge from that, a more equal fight can take place between Danny and Cersei. Because and Cersei's fire-breathing elephants that she never got. Right. And now, now yes, like, uh, you know, Danny still has two dragons, but her army has been absolutely eviscerated. And you yep. have to wonder who will emerge victorious. And I think that's honestly the thing that kind of mm-hmm. frustrates me about it. Is because it's, it's not just that they discarded the fantasy elements. It's they did so in service to a storytelling choice that is so transparently, we got to set this up. You know, Danny's too strong. So how can we take her down? Like, it's obvious they had to take Danny down. And additional to that is the fact that the choice was Tyrion's going to make a lot of these bad decisions. And then in season eight, a big theme is going to be, let's call out Tyrion for his bad decisions. He made those bad decisions because the story needed him to make those bad decisions in order to keep Cersei around. So it's this weird circular Mm -hmm. criticism, this almost meta-criticism of the show's decision to do that. And that's part of what irks me about it. Well, It's interesting because one of the things you just said was this idea of moving beyond all of the magic. But of course, some of the magic is still there. The dragons are there. Arya's faceless man training. Great point. We have direwolves. Thank the fucking gods. And of course, we have Bran Stark. Three-eyed raven. And yet, as absolutely foundationally elemental as Bran is to this story, not just to this episode, but to the entire story, Much like with the Night King, we still do not understand a lot about how Bran's powers work. Right. There is his now iconic line as Theon is apologizing to him in the Godswood, (laughs) where he says, I'm going to go now. Then he wargs into the Ravens to track the Night King. Absolutely useful. But then he never tells anybody that he found him. And so, you know, a question that I got a lot ahead of my Ask the Maester column, and I'm sure that people who watch this episode have been asking themselves is, so what was Bran doing? Mm -hmm. Warging. 
all that time, we we don't know. And part of the reason why we don't know is because we still do not understand truly, one, how his power works, two, what the position of Three-Eyed Raven exists to do besides the, he is the memory of the world thing, right. which again, we will explore just in a little bit later in this section here. But what does that mean? It's kind of words that don't exactly mean anything. What did he and Tyrion discuss in episode two? We mm-hmm. have to assume that this right. will come back, but that shoe didn't drop. One thing that we find really interesting is the confusion about whether Bran can see the future. Yeah, I want to talk about this for a minute, but quickly to a point you just made about, you know, again, what was he doing all episode? Did you feel while you were watching it multiple times, every time, basically every time they cut to Bran after yeah. he warged, oh my God, we're about to go into a vision. Right, I thought we'd do it. Like, I kept feeling like the camera was going to pull us right in and we were going to see what he was seeing and we were going to realize that he had gone back to the long night and learned some truth. The reason I I brought it up on the heels of you saying the magic is gone is because, again, Bran is still around, so we could, in theory, get these answers, but we have less and less reason to think that we will after not getting them heading into this battle and then in this battle. The future. This is fascinating. We've been talking about this a lot with each other, with Riley, with Zach, with Isaac. When Bran tries to explain his powers to Sansa in season seven and saying that he tried to explain them is putting it charitably, <laughs> he says that he can see the past. He says that he can see everything happening now, but he does not say explicitly that he can see the future. Also, in that season, when he is reunited with Arya, he makes a comment about how he thought she was going to go to King's Landing, which gives us some reason to think that he does not possess full certainty about the future and the events as they are going to unfold. So this is important. I think this is a lot of the reason why people are confused about this. When Jamie says, what about after? In regards to, will he tell them that Jamie pushed him out mm-hmm. of the window? Bran responds by saying, how do you know there isn't afterwards? Now, this implies that he doesn't know how the battle will go. Certainly, it strongly implies that, right? Unless he's playing around. Well, does it? I think you could just as convincingly read that as him having some sort of awareness, right. but taking seriously the nature of his station and his guardianship right. that he's not allowed to influence events by saying something. Now, if that's true and he does know other decisions that he makes unambiguously influence events, which we're going we're gonna to get to here. But you took that as indicating he does not know. No, I, I took that as muddying the waters. Mm-hmm. I think we should take a moment to kind of explain our guardian of the timeline theory, Go for it. which is that... Similar to anyone who's seen Infinity War, much like Doctor Strange's role in that story, that Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven's role is to kind of surf these timelines and make sure that these paradoxes that exist, such as Willis becoming Hodor, happen again in the same exact way as they happened before in order to, whatever, keep reality intact, keep everything moving towards this elemental battle between good and evil in which good wins. So... I think you could read the how do you know there is an afterwards mm-hmm. within the context of this theory as not wanting to tip his hand. Right. But also, why say anything then? That's why I don't, and I understand why people are confused right. by this line, because number one, recency bias, the visions happened several seasons ago, and this is like right now. Well, okay, but so you mentioned the visions. Yeah. It's worth talking about those for a minute because it is established canon that Bran can see the future. Yes, we we know that that happened. We've seen him do it. Yes, he is a green seer and he has been able to glimpse the future before he became the Three-Eyed Raven and also has glimpsed the future since becoming the Three-Eyed Raven. Recall when he saw the sea come to Winterfell. That's one example. That was was a portent of Theon's sack of 
Winterfell. He also, in season six, so this is after his training has begun, he sees the Sept of Baelor explode. He sees what Cersei is going to do before she does it. Now, neither he nor the viewer fully recognizes that, though. We did. Frame by frame. (laughs) (laughs) You can figure it out. That those are scenes from the future. Also, back in season four, before he arrived at the Three-Eyed Raven's Cave, when he reaches out and touches the weirwood tree in the north and he has a prolonged vision, he sees the same thing that Danny has seen in her trip through the House of the Undying, the throne room in the Red Keep in ruins. That is the future because we have not seen that and that has not happened to the Red Keep in the history of the show. The Red Keep... The history is easily trackable because it, it didn't exist. It didn't exist at a certain <laughs> time. It was not built for a significant amount of time after the conquest. Correct. So we know that he can see the future in some way. We do not know right. how well he can harness it, this how well the, he can control that ability. Is he in command of that power? Can he use it deliberately? Can he seek out some sort of information? We have no idea. It's another area where we don't fully understand Bran's powers. And in this, in this case, it's an area where we, we need to, to understand the role that he's playing in the story and also the mission and how he thinks about his role. Not just what his role is. How does he see it? How does he view his responsibility? It's an important point because here is another area in which a significant amount of this exposition was given to us in the inside the episode. There's that moment that you discussed where Bran... Um, has now escaped from the, the raid of the White Walkers on the Three-Eyed Raven Cave, and he touches the weirwood again. And it's then explained in the inside of the episode that Bran is kind of cataloging all these histories still. He's grappling with this immense download of information, and he just does not have control of it. Mm-hmm. Listen, again, I'm not a filmmaker. That is a very nebulous and difficult concept to, I think, convey. At the same time, like, it really wasn't conveyed. And I think when you look at it in the larger context of we don't know how this power works, confusing. Now. Right. So we still have to ask ourselves, like, how well can Bran do what he is meant to do? How well can he do the job? In the books— What even is he trying to do? Yeah, what is he (laughs) trying—like, literally when he's warging after the ravens, what's he still doing? Right. Is he seeking to guide? Yeah. Is he seeking to protect? Is he he nudging pieces into place so that the battle plays out in a certain way? We should note again that one thing that's mentioned in the after the episode of this episode is when he says, Theon, you're a good man. That's stated as him giving Theon heart to do the thing that he knows he must do in order for Arya to be able to come in and strike the kill blow. Right. Yes, it is stated that he knows Theon is going to die. It's not clear if that's because he has seen that or because it's just logical to deduce that (laughs) Theon will not beat the Night King in single combat. Either of those could be true. We don't know. In the books, Bran often, and again, characters like Arya, like John, Sansa, Danny, all of them, Tyrion, hearts of the story. But Bran often feels like yes. the heart of the story. The embodiment of our desire as consumers of fantasy stories, as Lewin put it to Bran earlier in the show's run, you know, to believe that we're special. Bran is special. He is. And it's really enjoyable TV and internet making to see every Bran meme. The Bran memes are fucking great. We love them. Yeah. They're not story. They're not story. We need to understand Bran's role in this story beyond one-off lines that tell us that the Night King's after him because he's the world's memory. We, we again, will maintain patience and hope that just because the Night King is gone does not necessarily mean we're through understanding Bran. Hopefully more will still come here. You know, I think that there's a reading that's made that this is a show about politics, family dynamics, et cetera. 
That's true. Mm-hmm. I think that there's another thing that you allied when you make that statement, which is what's a crucial part of this story over the first, especially three seasons, but three, four, five? Magic returning to the world. Yes. Why are we just kind of skittering away from that part of it? And I think when we talk about the future element, we have to talk about a theme that's pivotal to this story, which is destiny versus choice. Did yes. Bran did Bran know, as is suggested in that line about Theon, what was going to happen in the battle? Did he, like Doctor Strange, play out a bunch of these scenarios? Was that what he was doing in the Weirwood, playing out these scenarios, nudging people into place so that all of this would work out? Was that what was happening when he gave Arya the dagger right. in season seven, knowing that she would ultimately use it to take down the Night King? Recall that he gave it to her in the exact spot where she would end up using it to kill the Night King in front of the Weirwood. And it certainly seems like perhaps he knew that he was seeding that idea. And there's the knowing look on his face when he does that. And maybe he can sense that this is important, but he doesn't quite know why because he's not in control of his powers. Like it's just subconscious. The point is, none of this is conveyed to us in any kind of way that feels like clarity, that feels like command of this element of the story. Mm-hmm. There's also that interesting moment where, you know, he opens his eyes. He's been, he's he's left Theon, not interested in making small I have talk to go with now. Theon. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, me, every time I'm about to leave a room, I have to go now. <laughs> he opens his eyes and returns to the Godswood right at the moment when the Night King arrives in the God's Wood. Like, he knew. Like, right. he knew this with precision this the exact it. moment when the final confrontation was going to occur. He absolves Theon as he charges to his death, as we've noted. And this is key, too. Bran betrays no fear. Now, maybe that's because, as he said before, he's not really Bran Stark right. anymore. He's the Three-Eyed Raven. His humanity is suppressed beneath this new purpose. Not worried as the Night King approaches. Maybe. Though you would think that still the threat to his station as the protector of the world's memory would generate some fear. There is this chilling, really beautifully conveyed, powerful moment where they, sorry, John, they look into each other's eyes. (laughs) You're not the only one. The Night King and Bran look into each other's eyes. And Bran quickly drops his eye level from the Night King's eyes down. Is he looking at the spot at his heart where he knows the blade? is about to go, where he knows Arya is about to stick it with the pointy end. When he does that and then looks back up, the Night King kind of turns his head a little bit like there's a little bit of an expression on his face and a movement of the way he moves his head that conveys a little bit of a sense of, does this kid know something? Right. Does he know? You know, and the question is there for us as viewers too. Did he? Did he know the exact spot where the blade had to go? Did he know that Arya would put it there? Could the dagger itself have been forged from the last hero's blade? You know, that dagger, remember, is in one of Sam's books from the Citadel. We see a drawing of it. It is as old as the Long Night itself. Maybe it played an actual role, that dagger itself, in the first Long Night. And Bran knows that and knows how it could come into play here. We just don't know. And now another quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by Hello Fresh. HelloFresh makes conquering the kitchen a reality with deliciously simple recipes and fresh pre-measured ingredients delivered to your door. All meals come together in 30 minutes max. Call for less than two pots and pans and require minimal cleanup. Plus, with three plans to choose from, including classic, veggie, and family, there's something for everyone. 
So get out of that recipe rut and start cooking outside your comfort zone. Folks, let me tell you something. Not sure if you can hear it. I'm under the weather this week. Boy, what a boon it was when HelloFresh showed up at my doorstep on Monday. My husband Adam was able to whip up some pork, some hearty, wholesome potatoes. It was convenient. It was fast. The house smelled great. Our cat Halo actively tried to swipe the meat, which I take as a good sign that he's engaged and interested. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash binge80 and enter the code binge80. That's HelloFresh.com slash binge80 and enter the code binge80 for $20 off your first four boxes. Today's Binge Mode is also brought to you by Sonos. The experts at Sonos meticulously design every speaker from the inside out, combining best-in-class woofers and tweeters Mm. with proprietary software. They work with renowned producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience and brilliant room-filling sound. Sonos TruePlay puts the speaker tuning capability of the recording pros in the palm of your hands, optimizing the speaker's sound for the unique acoustics of your room. Sonos Home Theater also includes speech enhancement mode to clarify the sound of the human voice. Perfect for when characters whisper or the action intensifies. Simply turn it on in the Sonos app and never miss a minute of the story. Sonos works with all your streaming services and is easy to control with the Sonos app, your TV remote, AirPlay 2, your voice, and Amazon Alexa or touch panel. Sonos speakers and components work seamlessly together, making it easy to customize your sound system and expand when you're ready. Simply connect Sonos over Wi-Fi and enjoy listening in every room. Let me tell you something about my Sonos. I've got that subwoofer hooked up and the sounds of the pounding hooves of the Dothraki as they ride to their mass deaths. It's truly thrilling. I love it. You know how every now and then you're watching something and then you hear somebody else talk about a thing? And you're like, I missed that. Doesn't happen if you're listening on Sonos. For example, my beloved ghost, for reasons that will forever escape us, was charging in the front line. But while he was out there, we heard him growl a little, a little snarl as he showed his fangs and surged forth toward the foe. With our Sonos speakers, we could hear that. Go to Sonos.com to order your sound system today. That's S-O-N-O-S dot com. Today's binge is also brought to you by Daily Harvest. When was the last time you ate a breakfast that you felt good about? Not a bowl of sugary cereal, but a breakfast that's nourishing your body. Now you can transform your breakfast with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers carefully sourced chef-crafted smoothies, savory bowls, overnight oats, and more built on fruits and vegetables. Everything stays fresh in your freezer until you're ready to eat it. Mm. Choose from more than 50 nourishing options for any time of day. Ready to blend smoothies, savory harvest bowl soups, and more. Just add water or milk to a smoothie or heat up a harvest bowl and enjoy. All of Daily Harvest's ingredients are carefully sourced for maximum nourishment and flavor. You can actually see all the ingredients when you open the cup. Daily Harvest is the easiest, most oh. delicious way to load up on fruits and vegetables any time of day. You know what I love? Tell me. Soup. Oh. You know what Daily Harvest allows me to access easily? Soup. You know what else I love? Overnight oats. Oh. It's a jiffy. 
to have it right there in my home thanks to Daily Harvest. Jiff it up. The smoothies, you know, we're we're busy people here. Sometimes I, I look back at the day and I think too much junk food, not enough nourishment, and Daily Harvest helps me counteract that. Try to live a healthier life. Stay alive longer, record more binge mode. Go to daily-harvest.com and enter promo code binge mode to get three cups free in your first box. That's promo code binge mode for three free Daily Harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. daily-harvest.com. And now back to binge mode. Aria's role. Yes! We cannot possibly overstate how thrilled, chuffed, as the Brits might say, we are that it's Arya that killed the Night King. We're going to get into the prophesized savior question, prince that was promised, implications in a, in a second. But for now, let's focus on Arya and Hurok. There are so many threads that have been stitched together here. She got the Night King with the pointy end as John taught her to. She also imparted that wisdom to Sansa earlier in the episode. Uh-huh. You know, it's a real student becomes a teacher moment, which is always like a a crucial moment in the hero's journey. Get down to the crypt, she says, and Sansa says, I'm not abandoning my people. Take this and go. I don't know how to use it. Stick them with the pointy end. Incredible. She heard Sirio's words this time from Melisandre. What do we say to death? Not today. Reminding us how far she's come since those early days training and barely getting through her training sessions with Sirio Pharrell. And we also understand why she started fighting in the first place for her own path, for her own self-esteem, and then because of her family, to protect them, to avenge them, and to reject the idea that she had to be what society sought to make her. As she said to Ned after he was like, you'll have a husband one day, and you'll have you'll bear him sons, and you'll uh, you know live in a holdfast. And she said, that's not me. She also used the dagger that Bran gave her. We've talked about this dagger a few times, but let's linger on it for another moment here. This dagger has been in the story from the second episode. This is the dagger that was sent to kill Bran in season one, the dagger that Kat brought with her to King's Landing as proof of a plot against her family, the dagger that Littlefinger gave back to Bran in season seven and that Bran then gave to Arya. And with that dagger, she switched hands in this crucial moment, just as she had when she was sparring with Brienne in the Winterfell yard in season seven. So we were expertly primed in so many ways for this moment. And the Brienne scene actually featured that dagger. That's what Arya pulled up at the last second, even Mm -hmm. after losing her sword, when it seemed like she had lost to prove that she hadn't. This is, in every respect, an earned moment for Arya, who has been training to fight death since the beginning of this show. Our first introduction to her, recall, is her leaving knitting lessons to fire an arrow into a bullseye behind Bran as Jon watches. (laughs) It's just perfect symmetry across the entire story. She also, speaking of these threads coming back to fruition, she learned from the Hound, another person who was crucial on her path, another teacher along the way, where the heart is. Remember when he taught her that? That's where the heart is. How to deal, in other words, a decisive fatal blow to a precise spot. She trained to be a faceless man. Every step of her journey led her here. Yeah, I think it's such an important point because for all the people saying, oh, oh, she's a superhero all of a sudden, the way she came out of like nowhere to kill the Night King, as Adam Jacoby said in a conversation we were having on Twitter last night, there's literally no plot in Game of Thrones that has had as much screen time as Arya learning how to kill people. Like, 
Arya learning how to be good with weapons. Literally it's, from the first episode. From the first episode. You know, and we and should to know. defy expectations, to yeah. defy convention for what a lady, quote unquote, in this right. world is supposed to do. And, and we should note, like, a lot of that absolutely unfounded criticisms have to do with, well, you know, like, why didn't John do it? We should note, John learned to ride a dragon one episode ago, and now mm-hmm. all of a sudden he's strafing the battlefield <laughs> and, like, doing loop-de-loops. Totally. Right. And no but one th- is that's like, okay. And no right. one is like, why? <laughs> hold, hold on a sudden. Why is all of a sudden can John uh, yeah. ride a dragon like a fucking expert? I wonder what the I wonder what difference the difference <laughs> between accepting something yeah. from John and Arya could be. I wonder what it could be. So the showrunners have said that they've known for three years that this would be the outcome, that it would be Arya who takes down the Night King. So let's assess the Melisandre fact with that in mind. After Arya, Beric, and the Hound find themselves in the Great Hall, Melisandre says the Lord of Light brought Beric back for a reason, that he'd done it to protect her and guide her to this moment. And this plays into the idea of every thread being connected and helps us reconcile the kind of agency, destiny, quagmire. Uh Maybe there's a bigger plan, but we still have to do the things that we have to do to get there. And we should note, speaking of Beric and the Hound, how fitting it is that Beric gave his life for Arya when in the book he gives his life for Cat Stark. And how fitting it is that Arya has time with these two. In episode two, she said she wasn't going to spend her last night on Earth with these miserable old shits. Went to find Gendry to fuck and tap into her own humanity. Recall her chats with Beric about death and rebirth and her father, Ned. Think of all that she and the Hound unlocked for each other. Arya isn't no one, but no one is a part of who she is. Her season eight arc has reinforced powerfully the notion that while our choices define us, we don't have to choose to be only one thing. All the aspects of our life make us who we are. Yes, absolutely. And when Arya sees Melisandre, you know, they have that moment earlier in the episode where Mel is looking up at Arya on the battlements and they're locking eyes to the point where Arya actually literally does a real life, like, yeah. over the shoulder, are you looking at me kind of yep. thing? Because it lingers for so long. But here in the hall, when she sees Melisandre, the following exchange ensues. I know you. And I know you, Mel says, looking... Like, damn hyped. Arya says, you said we'd meet again. And here we are at the end of the world. And that end of the world phrasing echoes something that Beric said in the Eastwatch episode in season seven. Arya says, you said I'd shut many eyes forever. You were right about that, too. And Melisandre then parrots in a slightly amended, crucially amended order <laughs> her line to Arya from season three. Brown eyes, green eyes, and blue eyes. And she looks at her knowingly, lingering on the blue eyes, imparting this sense of greater purpose. And Arya turns to the door and they listen for a while as the dead bodies are amassing outside. And then Melisandre says, serious words, what do we say to the god of death? And reminding us of how long, again, Arya has been preparing for this, reminding Arya, too, of what role death has played in her life, how she can master it. So when she says, not today, and goes off, she's returning to that moment in season one, not when she fled from Syria in fear, but when she accepted that she wasn't going to let the forces that were coming after her in that moment beat her. This is a very different foe, but it's still the same idea that she's been working to master ever since those moments in season one. And earlier in the episode when the Hound said to Beric, we're fighting death, we can't mm-hmm. beat death, it was no accident, obviously, that he said that to Beric Dondarrion, right. a character like, who's been resurrected, right? <laughs> It reinforces for us, the audience, how complex that truth is because Beric has beaten death, been reborn many, many times, but he's also the one who said to John beyond the wall in season seven, death is the enemy, the first enemy and the last. Arya has been training her entire arc to conquer death, but as she shows us here, that's not actually something that 
somebody achieves by being no one. Right. And leaving ident- your true identity behind to become this nameless servant of the many-faced God. And it's also not by seeking immortality or something unnatural, something that defies normal life, organic life, as Voldemort did and as the Night King seemed to be doing all of this time, living for thousands of thousands of years as he had. And now, at this point, trying to erase the memory of the world and thus the secrets to defeating him. It's by embracing... Arya's part, any person's part, in trying to make the world a little bit better while you're in it. And then meeting death gladly. Another Harry Potter idea there. The third brother in The Tale of the Three Brothers, you know, greeting death as an old friend. Arya isn't serving death here. This is a subtle but important distinction, as she did when she was in Bravos. It could have forever if she had stayed and been no one. She's conquering it. She's refusing to let it rule her and define her. And that's one of the many, many, many ways in which the takeaway for viewers from the episode should not be, well, why Arya instead of John? It's a unifying force for them, one of many in their lives. John has been ready to meet death for mm-hmm. a while, and this is one more thing that they share. Okay, so did Melisandre know back in season three when she said that Arya would shut many eyes, including blue ones? The three-year timeline that the showrunners mentioned indicates no, but that right. line and the ensuing promise that Arya and Melisandre would meet again always felt rife with significance. Mm -hmm. That felt like a promise. Yes, absolutely. Maybe Melisandre came to believe before arriving at Winterfell that Arya was the one. Maybe something clicked when she saw her there and looked into her eyes. Either way, her words helped inspire Arya Mm -hmm. in her first battle. Again, her first actual battle. Right. Lots of kills, but first full battle. After badass staff fighting and a brutal head injury and a terrifying library horror walk and a hallway frenzy with Barrack and the Hound, deciding to go to run to the godswood. But Arya ultimately still had to decide to do that. Right, right. Mel telling her wasn't— Right. It's not like, oh, I see. Right. Just as if Bran gave her the dagger knowing what she'd use it for, she still ultimately had to decide to do that. She had to go there and do it. Recall what Dumbledore says to Snape in Prince's Tale— Harry must not know until the last moment, not until it is necessary. Otherwise, how could he have the strength to do what must be done? Maybe, Mm -hmm. perhaps brand new, perhaps Melisandre knew and only told her at the final moment because then how else could she face that terror? How can anyone? Hopefully the show will explore these questions, give us some clarity on this. Ari's victory is earned and incredible and one of the great loop closings of plot in this show. She could uh, not have looked cooler wielding yeah, that staff, by the way. I truly could not The have. recognition of her unique skill, courage, and worth. The end of Game of Thrones, a television show that is finishing before the books on which the television show right. is based are themselves concluding, was always going to be divisive in some capacity. You can't satisfy every facet of the fandom. And as we have outlined in this episode, and we'll surely continue to do so, those divides are probably going to be exacerbated by the choices that the storytellers make the rest of the way here. Like we said earlier, what is it that fans even want? Well, that answer is going to vary fan to fan. But the one thing, surely the one thing that we can all agree on is storytelling that honors the time that we've spent with a character and the choices that that character has made. Arya killing the Night King did that, and we should absolutely celebrate it. Important. Context for this is prophecy. What Mm. does Mm. this turn of events mean for the prince that was promised, the various prophecies that we've been introduced to throughout the show? Does this mean that we are finished with the Lord of Light now that Melisandre, Beric, and Thoros are gone? 
And what's the show's message ultimately about the roles of religion in this world and the religion of society? Does it really have one? Mm. Mel got a pretty great ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for a character who killed a lot of people, yes, in the service of what she believed was right, but still killed a lot of people, including a child, by yeah. fire. Yeah. I don't know that I'd frame it as, but still, like, some of the worst stuff that happens in the world is because people yes. do terrible things because they think they're serving a greater purpose. That's fanaticism. Yeah. And the show kind of glorifying Melisandre at the end clouds what I think was already a muddy message. Right. And maybe that's deliberate, I you know, that is. there's not a clear judgment. And I think that on the, the flip side of that is that the show has, I think, a very powerful message about open-mindedness and spirituality and faith as a contrast to fanaticism and taking the name of something and doing evil deeds. As Davos says, if your Lord commands you to burn children, your Lord is evil. Exactly. Now, she conveniently died before Davos, <laughs> yeah. Davos could have uh, passed judgment on her as he promised to do. There's no need to execute me, Sir Davos. I'll be dead before dawn, she tells him when he lets her into the castle. Mm -hmm. And by the way, he was following her outside oh, with yeah. his hand on his fucking sword. He was ready. Ready. I feel cheated on his behalf. Yeah, you think she should have just let him do it? I really wanted to see him feel the satisfaction of plunging that blade into her heart and knowing yeah. he had done that for Shireen. I thought that would have been poetic. But maybe I'm just as bloodthirsty as I Melisandre. thought that would have been Nissa Nissa poetic. I'm slightly saddened that I feel like we're not going to understand what she did when she went to Essos to come back with this new ability. Is what it did a she new promise? ability? I mean, in a sense— It's just the same spell Beric uses to light his sword, right? But, like, Beric, again, I think you could say had the Lord of Light's light within his body and every time he cuts his hand on the sword it's like his blood is containing that flame. But he's not flame. using the blood when they're beyond the wall and, they, and he's just using a nonverbal spell. Valerian spell. She, again, had no idea how to do any of this stuff. Like He was resurrected and presumably has some kind of inherent something after passing through the light of R'hllor. She was not aware of any of these powers until semi- late in her career as a Red Priestess, was like, how do you even know how to do this to, to Thoros of Mir? Yeah. I was really ready to see her incinerate herself when mm. she lit the I trench. thought that was what was going to happen, yeah. too. It would have felt very poetic after yeah. how many people she had burned and also like a very literal embodiment of Melisandre as Lightbringer, which would have been very satisfying, Still, I think. there is something kind of poetic about her walking into the dawn light mm -hmm. to meet her end. In her mind, her god ushered in again like light coming back to the world, but did she deserve to die on her own terms after all the things she's done? Basically, the argument we make about Theon, mm -hmm. you know, does he deserve like this grand send off after all the things he did? She didn't really stop whispering into the ears of kings, did she? She couldn't stop after all these years. She whispered into Arya's ear. And before that, she encouraged Danny to call John. Mm -hmm. John had Sam's letter about the dragon last too, but Melisandre sought to unite ice and fire as she's has sought to for a while. Never stopped meddling, that she Melisandre. She never did. What she did was do it out of the sight of John and Davos and people who were like, right. oh, I will kill her. So what do you think that the show ultimately had a judgment where Melisandre and the Lord of Light and the faith of R'hllor is concerned? No. Because Beric, conversely, is, a, is good. literally is positioned good. in a Christ right. pose. Is, right, in the hallway, in the getting hallway. stabbed numerous times. Yes. Making the sign of the cross with his body. Yes. I ultimately feel like no. I think that there's a message here certainly about fanaticism. But I don't think that there is necessarily a message here about 
which particular religion or God is quote unquote right. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that clearly the priests and priestesses of R'hllor can call down some pretty sick magic. Right. I think if you wanted to, you could say that it is a message ultimately about putting aside your personal prejudice and bias and banding together with people who don't share the same faith as you because what did we ultimately end up seeing? Well, there are people who practice the faith of the seven. There are people, obviously, we're in the north who worship the old gods and the weirwood tree plays a crucial role. Melisandre, Beric, the Lord of Light, R'hllor, very present there. We even have... Tormund and the wildlings, again, the old gods. So all of these faiths mixing together, all of these people. We have the Dothraki for a brief moment in time. The Dothraki, all of these cultures coming together and standing together and saying, it's not for this moment about a quest for power. It's not about trying to convince you to believe in what I believe in. It's about the common fight. Where is our pal, the Flame of Truth, Kinvara? Miss her. Who came in extremely hot for a single scene in a single episode to... Basically say to Varys, I know what happened to you. Do you want me to tell you what the voice you heard coming out of the brazier when the sorcerer cut you said? Do you want me to tell you all these things? She said, everything is the Lord's will, but men and women make mistakes when when the fact that Melisandre had made numerous mistakes was brought up to her. A really interesting line to think about given Arya and the fact that Melisandre gives Arya this little nudge. Melisandre is doing that because of the Lord. But ultimately, as we've said, it's Arya making that choice. So you could read that and say, yes, everything is the Lord's will, but men and women make mistakes, or in this case, make choices. But you could also say, everything is your will. Your will is an individual person, and you have to decide no matter what somebody's saying or doing, whether or not you're going to act. And now let's go to our custom segment from Oreo. Oreo has teamed up with Game of Thrones to create limited edition packaging and cookies. Bust with the sigils of three remaining contending houses. Oreo cookies are best enjoyed when dunked into milk. Who got dunked on this week? Well, our guy, the Night King. The NK. Peace. The NK got KO'd. KO'd. (laughs) Dunked on hard. He got dunked on so hard that he turned into like 15 trays of ice cubes. (laughs) How about that? Could use that. To cool your milk. And then you'll have it ready when you want to dunk more Oreo. That would be delicious. And you know who else got dunked on? Or what else? And I say this with a heavy heart. John's battle tactics, which leave quite a bit to be desired, especially if you are a member of the Dothraki and no longer are alive because the race has been extinguished. Because John sent you into the dark. Why? And built a trench behind his army so that no one could escape. And then had the leaders of that army, Grey Worm in particular, engage the collapsible bridges while everyone was still on the other side of the trench. Fight behind the obstacles. In fact, fight inside the walls. How about that? How about stay in the castle? Stay in your castle. But that's fine, John. You did. You want it. You want it anyway. Shouts to him. Shouts to John. Thanks to Oreo. And head to Oreo.com to pledge your fealty to the house of your choice. And tune into Game of Thrones on Sundays on HBO. What about prophecy? Big question. Does Arya killing the Night King mean that she is the last hero, the prince that was promised, Azor Ahai? For quite a while, it has seemed like John and or Danny best fit the description. 
Is that not the case anymore? Is it a combination? Let's quickly run through. You've, you've written about this at length in Maester and our Loose End series, et cetera, just to refresh people briefly on what the actual language of each prophecy is. Right. So the last hero, which is less a prophecy and more a tale, a folk right, tale a about a thing that happened in the past, about how the others were defeated in the first place, says, So as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the dead lands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one, his friends died in his horse and finally even his dog. And his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it. And the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders. Big as hounds! <laughs> now the Prince Azor language. Now remember, Azor Ahai is the original figure, the legendary original figure who defeated Ultimate Evil. And the prince that was promised is the prophesied return version of that person. The words go, when the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor Ahai shall be born again amidst smoke and salt as he ham. Uh, <laughs> R.I.P. Renly. R.I.P. Renly. Prophecies being misread. Uh-huh. Visions being misread. Kind of melts thing. And not just Melisandre's, but everyone who prophecies in this story. Yes. Does not get it all the way right. <laughs> Correct. There's always a crucial bit of information that they misunderstand or misrepresent. Right. Or fulfill and seeking to avoid. And and make it happen, you know, because of that. Remember Melisandre saying to John in season six, in season six, Stannis was not the prince who was promised, but someone has to be, right? Someone. Mm-hmm. She thought it was Stannis, or thought she could make it Stannis. And then John, and then John and Danny, as a uniting of ice and fire. Then she thought it was Arya in right. some form or fashion, clearly. Yes. Now, Arya doesn't fit the descriptions that John and Danny do, right? But it's kind of neat to think of someone who isn't the textbook savior to match the job anyway, which is kind of a vintage fantasy idea. Any of us can be the hero. Arya didn't kill the Night King because prophecy said she would, though this is where the, the blue eyes wrinkle comes in and the brand dagger complicates things. She did it because she worked hard to train and become the person she wanted to be, not the person the world wanted to make her. The idea of the answer to this question being some sort of combination and a combination that subverts the John Danny primary hero expectation at this point of the story is actually a very thronesy and very satisfying thing. You know, we, like the characters, run the risk of interpreting the prophecies in the story too literally and then letting that interpretation rule us. But we should never lose sight of that line from Tyrion in the books, he says to Jorah, prophecy is like a half-trained mule. It looks as though it might be useful, but the moment you trust in it, it kicks you in the head. And it's exciting to think of thrones subverting our expectations here in this way. The question is whether the show will lean into doing that and yeah, explore I, that idea with us I don't know. or leave it unaddressed. The post-episode featurettes said, we hope to kind of avoid the expected. Jon Snow has always been the hero, the one who's been the savior, but it just didn't seem right to us for this moment. So everything we just said is true. This is thrilling. The idea of this unexpected answer, wonderful. But that explanation is actually a little troubling. Like strictly doing it for the sake of a surprise shouldn't be the guiding principle. But despite that, there is, as we said, so much in Arya's arc that justifies the choice that does make her a worthy savior, a worthy hero. And so much in how fantasy stories grapple with the role of prophecy in shaping our lives that make this a 
fascinating ramification to explore. So let's actually explore it together as people who care about the story. And let's hope that the show does too. You know, hopefully we're not finished with this. Hopefully it isn't going to just be left with us wondering. It's also worth remembering that for a long time, John wasn't really the expected choice. You know, he's emerged that way over time, and we've been with him on the show for so long that it feels like he's always been the one. But that wasn't where we started. You know, the hints about where his arc was ultimately going, the R plus L equals J certainty, and all of that, that's all been there all along, of course. But he was never the conventional hero. He, just like so many of the other characters that we cherish— embodies part of that cripples, bastards, and broken things idea that's at the heart of the story. So let's talk a little bit more about John. Because this is a fascinating episode for John's overall arc. Subverting expectations, as we've stated numerous times this episode and others, is crucial to the experience of Game of Thrones. Unlike, say, Ned and Rob, though, John isn't dead and has been inextricably linked with battling the existential threat against humanity into whose eyes he has gazed. (laughs) Which those characters were not. They were, you know, involved in more earthly battles. So where does this episode leave John's storyline? It's a fascinating thing to consider. First, while John is an excellent warrior, again, we have to lament his battle plans. They're not the best. He, first, let's acknowledge that he's 5-0. I mean, hard home is a tie. At the same time, My dude is always getting bailed out. Yes. Stannis at the wall, his cavalry come in at the right moment. Not to undermine this heroic effort. Probably his best single effort, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Like in terms of leading, being on the battlefield, inspirational leader. I think it's Battle of the Wall. But they were not winning. And he ultimately was walking out to Mansa's tent to be like, I'll kill the guy. And that'll be it. And I'll I'll die. He's literally about to reach for a knife over a meal. Right. (laughs) The boats at Hardhome, the Night King let him go. And that was, I think, ultimately a tactical defeat, but like you couldn't call it a true defeat. He didn't enter it knowing it was a battle, though. So, right. So there's that. And he got away with what he came for, which is he got some wildlings out, which is what he wanted to do. Not as many as he wanted, but he survived and he got wildlings out. So I think you could call that some kind of a draw. Sansa at the Battle of the Bastards came in with the Knights of the Vale and saved him. And I mean, listen, he was like about to get flambéed by blue flames yes. before Arya <laughs> saved the day. And that's before mentioning all the like truly wild tactical stuff that he had, having the soldiers outside, cutting their off their route of retreat, having a flaming trench behind them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that we've talked about. And so you mentioned the being flambéed. Right. Let's quickly talk about one of the uh, wildly popular theories that has sprung up in the wake of this episode. And that is that John was not just screaming right. <laughs> at Viserion, but was shouting, go, go, go to buy Arya time. As we've seen many times, the solo charge of the Battle of the Bastards, right. telling Melisandre not to bring him back, not wanting to fight to regain Winterfell in the first place until Sansa convinced him, going beyond the wall to get the white when he didn't need to go do that, offering to go talk to Cersei alone when it meant certain death, et cetera, et cetera. John, as we have said time and again, does not feel worthy of being alive. And in this moment, when he looks up at Viserion and shouts in his face, Viserion is a dragon, John is defeated. He is utterly hopeless. And where does that leave him? It leaves him where John has so often found himself. He's willing to do something desperate so that he can keep fighting until the end and sacrifice himself if he has to, if it gives anyone else around him any hope of fighting for a minute longer. 
But that doesn't mean he sees Arya and actually says anything. In this moment here with John and Viserion, Ned, that line that Ned said to Varys in season one feels very present. But I grew up with soldiers. I learned how to die a long time ago. That is true for John, and it has been magnified in his life by the burden of his rebirth and his position in this great war. He possesses uncommon courage, but he also has that idea that Olena once said to Cersei, that yearning for the grave. It's understandable why it's tempting to look to create some sort of puzzle here or solve the mystery of what was happening in that moment. But that moment on its own feels very true to John's character and who he is and who he has always been or has been for quite some time. We don't need to rob Arya of her victory by giving John credit. Right. Humanity won because everybody banded together. Yes, this was a team effort. Yes. But Arya dealt the decisive blow. She did. John fought for as long as he could. He did. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Right. Agree. Regarding John's sacrifice, let's consider the moment where he just runs by Sam as Sam is on the ground being basically crushed by whites. Like sucked into a pool of whites. Which the showrunners noted as conveying the desperate Mm -hmm. nature of John's race to the godswood in any other time. Yes. John's best friend, the person who in so many instances has talked John down from various decisions he was going to make, from leaving the Night's Watch, etc. He would stop and save Sam's life. He didn't have time in this moment to do it. Brutal. Very tough moment for Sam. And this is important setup for a choice he'll soon have to make. Not being willing to sacrifice Rickon is how he wound up making the solo charge in Battle of the Bastards. Has he learned what is necessary now? So the interesting thing to us is, what is John's identity now? He's been, you know, a single-issue candidate mm-hmm. for, for a long time. <laughs> Looked into the Night King's eyes, the army of the dead. We got a eye in the dragon glass. Loves to talk about it. Every decision John has made, everyone bringing the wildlings through the wall, a truly revolutionary move, by the way, mm-hmm. leading to his death, reinstating houses who fought against him, aligning with Danny, opting into bad plan, all of this stuff has stemmed from the absolute crystal clarity that he had in fighting the army of the dead and that being the absolute correct and only thing to do. And now that's gone. Gone. Right? Cersei remains, uh-huh. but John has to look the truth in the eye now, as Sansa said. He has to grapple with the truth of his parentage. He can't push that to the side now. Right. What does that mean to him, to Danny, to the realm? And he'll have to grapple with Sam's claim about Danny and the way Danny responded to hearing who he is. And Sansa's continued tension with Danny and everything else that could cause or stem from that potential rift. It's worth considering that John's why me burden may actually be exacerbated now. It's not like the Night King's death erases that. It might amplify it because in his mind, why is he here? Why did the Lord of Light bring him back? What's his purpose? He asked Beric about this in season seven when they were still pursuing this mission. And Beric said, I don't think it's our purpose to understand except one thing. We're soldiers. We have to know what we're fighting for. I'm not fighting so some man or woman I barely know can sit on a throne made of swords. Well, that's where we are now. John asked what he was fighting for, and Beric said, life, death is the enemy, the first enemy and the last. And when John replied that we all die, Beric said, the enemy always wins, and we still need to fight him. That's all I know. You and I won't find much joy while we're here, but we can keep others alive. We can defend those who can't defend themselves. And John tapped into his Night's Watch vows there, the idea of guarding the realms of men. And Beric said, maybe we don't need to understand any more than that. Maybe right. that's enough. But if that's gone now, 
for John. What's left? You know, can he find that purpose elsewhere if he doesn't want the throne? And we do not believe that he wants the throne. John has always been this gifted leader because he's been such a reluctant one. He hasn't sought out power. He sought out what's right. You know, as Dumbledore said to Harry, it's a curious thing, Harry, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those Mm. who have never sought it. Those who, like you, have leadership thrust upon them and take up the mantle because they must and find to their own surprise that they wear it well. That's always been John. And it still can be, even as the Night King fades into memory and his parentage reveal takes center stage. Dumbledore, so wise. Harry, of course, also faced a moment like this where he had to remind himself of the eternal nature of the fight, even and in particular when it seemed absolutely hopeless and lost. Quote, and Harry remembered his first nightmarish trip into the forest the first time he had ever encountered the thing that was then Voldemort and how he had faced him and how he and Dumbledore had discussed fighting a losing battle not long thereafter. It was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and fight again and keep fighting. For only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. Evil takes many forms. John's fight and ultimately victory or sacrifice can too. And then there's Ramsey's words. If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. And I certainly, I think we agree. Uh-huh. John is not headed for a necessarily happy ending. Doesn't seem so. No. Doesn't seem he's so. He's been trying to die for a while now. Certainly since he's come back. I'm excited to see what happens with John in the next few episodes because part of what made John such a compelling pick as the savior candidate is that he wouldn't have thought of himself that way. But still... When other people do and they put you in these positions and you're leading a charge, that does inform a lot of your identity and a lot of how you think about life. Well, now what? Yeah. Now what does he think? He doesn't want the throne. Danny does. But the people in his life are telling him she shouldn't have it. It's That's going to be a lot. I actually, as much as it tears at my heart, and again, this gets back to the thing of fuck me up, Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. This plot line tears at my heart, but it feels extremely earned. And I am really excited to see where it goes. Absolutely. Me too. Jorah. Are you going to be able to handle this? I'm going to try my best, and we're going to keep it quick so that I don't just melt into a puddle of tears. Jorah and Danny. After the Night King has fallen, and the Whites and his army have been sapped of the magic that moves them, Jorah at last succumbs to his myriad wounds. And he died just as he would have wanted to, fighting for Danny and fighting back in his home at last. And wielding, as he told Sam he would last episode, a sword in his father's memory to guard the realms of men. Really beautiful. Jorah, crucially, is not just fighting for Danny here. She is fighting for him. They're side by side. They're on the ground together. They're trying to tackle the seemingly impossible, just as they have so many times before. And Danny is a warrior, too. And she fucking shows it here. They really brought out the best in each other so often. And that includes a thing that Jorah never let Danny lose sight of. The fact that she has a gentle heart. You have a gentle heart. (laughs) We see that here. We see it here. I saw you looking at a gentle heart. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Davos would have had a field day with with Jorah and Danny. Danny weeps over his body, the body of her most trusted advisor, Uh. dearest friend, despite everything that they suffered through because it was not an easy road for them. But Jorah was literally fighting on his knees for Danny at the end here. And it's so... Tragic because he dies after the walkers have vanished. But that also feels so fitting because it's like he he held on just long enough to make sure she was okay, which is really beautiful. And in many ways, Jorah's arc is a tragic one. You know, he has a very complicated past full of true horrors and real mistakes. And he also loved a woman who didn't love him back. 
But it's also a hopeful one because it's a reminder of the power of perseverance. He fought his way to get back home. He fought his way to get back to Danny. He fought his way after she ordered him to, to heal himself. And he told her that all he wanted was to serve her. And he did. And he said once, there's a beast in every man and it stirs when you put a sword in his hand. But for Jorah, he was at his best with that sword in his hand because that meant he was fighting for Danny and something he believed in. And he won't be by her side for the last war, which is devastating. But he imparted wisdom that will hopefully stay with her forever. And it is among the most crucial things that he ever said to her. Hopefully she will keep them in mind moving forward. He told her no one can survive in this world without help. No one. He told her you may cover it up and deny it, but you have a gentle heart. He told her they're too weak to fight, as are your people. You must be their strength. And perhaps most imperatively, he said it's tempting to see your enemies as evil all of them. But there's good and evil on both sides in every war ever fought. And Jorah brought out the best in Danny. I'm getting sad. I love him. So handsome. Jorah brought out the best in Danny and she brought out the best in him. And he died at his best because she inspired him to. And hopefully he can continue to do the same for her and guide her from the grave. Did you see the interview with Ian Glenn in EW where he was asked if there was anything that he wished Jorah had gotten to do before his death? And he said, other than the painfully obvious one of making love to Daenerys. <laughs> oh in my all God. Honesty, no. <laughs> <clears throat> I need a few. Wow. I need a few moments alone. <laughs> I need a few private moments. Is that what we're calling it now? Jora <laughs> making love? Oh my God. That's incredible. <laughs> Never forget, they kiss in the books. They do kiss in the books. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> Theon, our problematic fave. Um, <laughs> now, Bran, importantly, absolves him. Mm-hmm. Theon, seeking to apologize for so many things, says, Bran, I just want you to know I wish the things I did. And then Bran says in his trademark, eerie, flat tone, everything you did brought you to where you are now, where you belong, home. Beautiful idea. Beautiful idea. couple things. One, similar to what Bloodraven said to them when they arrived in his cave about Jojen and possibly Hodor, quote, he knew what would happen from the moment he left, he knew and he went anyway. Theon didn't know. But what Bran implies here is that on some level, all paths were leading here. There is a way that choice and destiny can be in a relationship. And Theon's choices, yes, led him astray, led him to do some of the worst things that we've witnessed in this book, but they also led him back too. Bran, who can see the board, we hope, we think, understands this. And two, the idea of home from Bran is interesting. Like, he's not Bran Stark anymore, as he said numerous times. But clearly there's still some humanity left. And Uh later he says, you're a good man. Thank you. (laughs) Um, It's a strangely moving season for Theon. It really is. I will say this. I think it's a testament to the actors Alfie Allen and Sophie Turner that that one extremely emotion-laden look that they Uh give each other when they're sitting in the courtyard over a bowl of soup. Uh There's so much there. It's incredible. That's not writing. Probably if we could find the script somewhere, it would say, Theon and Sansa gaze at each other emotionally, right? And they just do that. And that, to me, is kind of the issue. Like, listen, I've I've been on record as kind of being out on Theon, but I think all of what, all of the movement of empathy towards Theon has nothing to do with the story, the plot, et cetera. And it's all about the talents of Alfie Allen as an actor. That's what I have to say about this. 
I think that the show clearly thinks that the story is redeeming him. Now, whether viewers would be willing to accept that, absent that truly stunningly emotionally compelling rendering, right? probably not. I don't yeah. think either of us would have been. We can't speak for everyone, but I think a lot of people went into the season extremely out on Theon and ultimately are left saying he did terrible things and does not. Those crimes are not past forgiving, right. but that ultimately there was something poignant about seeing the way that this played out. I agree. Out. There is something poignant about it. And listen, I think if they would have leaned into that more of a truly like unredeemable, desperate man who's just now trying to do whatever small amount of good that he can do with whatever time he has left, that's compelling to me. But being like, now don't you feel for this guy is kind of... I think they tried to do that in the season seven finale and we were all like, we don't want this. Yeah. <laughs> Too much Theon on my screen. Yeah. Um, so maybe those quick snapshots of sad eyes was ultimately... <laughs> I mean, that was, honestly, that was a moving scene. It really And was. there's no dialogue. Some nice symmetry here. Season one, he fired an arrow to save Bran from the wildling attack and he fires arrows again. He also contrasts the charge to death Theon is ready to make in season two with his actual charge to death here. One would have been for glory to wind up in the songs, and this was to finally to save another person. Shouts to Kim Renfro for reminding people of this, and Dance Theon, then going by Reek, is in front of the heart train. He thinks they're whispering to him, and maybe as brand they were. Uh-huh. Quote, the old gods, he thought, they know me, they know my name. I was Theon of House Greyjoy. I was a ward of Eddard Stark, a friend and brother to his children. Please, he fell to his knees. A sword, that's all I ask. Let me die as Theon, not Reek. And he did. Imagine if they would have had that in there. That would be great. <laughs> Instead of being really like, incredible. you can kick a man where his nuts once were, and that is how you know that he's changed. George still has it, man. <laughs> George still has it here. Yeah. Um, Roderick told Theon, remember in that moment, that heart-wrenching moment when Theon is about to very inexpertly hack off his head, that <laughs> Theon Greyjoy, you are truly lost. And Lewin said he wasn't the man he was pretending to be seeing right through him. And Theon said, quote, I've gone too far to pretend to be someone else. You can't forgive Theon's crimes. That's our position. But it turned out, for everyone's benefit, that he truly wasn't the man that he yes. was pretending to be. Thank God. Sansa and Tyrion, unbelievably emotionally impactful scenes from them. I was a fucking mess when they were huddled behind the crypts as the dead had a stunning turn of events come alive. Uh, <laughs> that was really moving. Tyrion, before that, though, wants to go up above, wants to see what he could do, says there might be something other people are missing, something that makes a difference. And this, again, from the dude who, like everyone else down there, has not yet realized that they're surrounded by dead bodies when the whole the whole very thing— tough. Very tough. The whole thing that the foe does is raise dead bodies. <laughs> very tough. Uh, and as stated, has not had a good plan in uh, quite a few seasons. But there's something really heartening about this from Tyrion. He wants to be involved. He wants to be in the thick of it. He wants to get his hands dirty, even if it's dangerous. He's not content, despite— all of these setbacks to just be relegated to the shadows. That's exciting for the next three episodes. Tyrion says, if I was out there, and Sansa says, you die, there's nothing you can do. Tyrion replies, you might be surprised the lengths I'd go to to avoid joining the Army of the Dead. I can think of no organization less suited to my talents. She replies, fittingly, witty remarks won't make a difference. That's why we're down here. None of us can do anything. It's the truth. It's the most heroic thing we can do now. Look the truth in the face. This is a really key idea, not only for this episode, but it feels like the kind of idea that they're putting in there to set up the rest of the season, the rest of the series. For us as fans, as we assess what we want out of the story, but also for 
these characters? Is John going to be able to look the truth in the face? Are Sansa, are Tyrion, are Arya, Danny, all of them? They're not going to just be able to face Cersei forever. They were banded together against the Night King. Now they're going to band together against Cersei. At some point, they have to look at each other and themselves. Then what? Tyrion says to Sansa, maybe we should have stayed married. And she says, you were the best of Low them. bar. <laughs> Extremely low bar. That's a really sad moment. Yeah. And he says, what a terrifying thought. And then she smiles at him and kind of then transitions into a frown. And she says, it wouldn't work between us. Why not? The dragon queen. Your divided loyalties would become a problem. And Masande comes in with the slam dunk here and says, yes, without the dragon queen, there'd be no problem at all. We'd all be dead already. But that exchange between Sansa and Tyrion feels really key. More yeah. good foreshadowing here for what's to come. Sansa and Danny had that fruitful exchange in episode two, but let's not forget that before Theon showed up and interrupted them, that ended with tension. That ended with them being on opposite sides of what would happen with Northern independence. That remains unresolved. Again, highly emotional moments, that beautiful sequence where they're huddled and Tyrion grabs her hand and kisses it before they both charge out together, ready to not only fight, but die together. Wonderful stuff. Rooting for those two. Liana Mormont, RIP. This was, I don't want to say my my favorite moment was Liana Mormont's <laughs> death, but it was the moment that felt most old school thrones to me because it was absolutely a shock. A character that was beloved. Uh-huh. Meme Lord. Meme Lord. And a death in a way that was completely unexpected. Kind of, Interesting parallels to the McCumber tale. Remember Rob uh-huh. in season one? When coming into Bran's room after old Nan had scared him with a tail, <laughs> she says, listen, old Nan uh, used to tell me that the world exists in a, the eye of a blue-eyed giant named McCumber. And here is Lyanna Stark stabbing a blue-eyed dead giant in the eye. The obvious David and Goliath parallels oh, yeah. here. The smallest uh-huh. warrior on the battlefield taking out the largest warrior on the battlefield was absolutely northern through and through. Perhaps like the most fiercely northern and fierce defender of the northern way of life that we really had here. Like, remember, John was ready to give a lot of stuff up. John mm-hmm. was ready to kind of quit. And Liana Mormont, who is like, when Stannis came a calling, was like, hey, uh, we know no king, but the king in the north whose name is Star. Incredible. <laughs> and just the way she, with her sheer bravado, shamed grown men. <laughs> Routinely. Routinely. You refused the call. I Love mean, that. when you get called out in that fashion, it's very, very tough. Her influence on events, on the political events, on the power structures of the north, really can't be understated. John doesn't get elected or chosen king in the North without Liana Mormont's direct entreaty to do just that. Mm-hmm. He also doesn't get eviscerated upon his return, <laughs> if <Right>. not for her. <laughs> um, did not, in the end, let her men do her fighting for her. She was right there on the front lines. Woman of her word. I love yeah. it. And you have to ask after this. Liana Mormont gone. Jorah Mormont was obviously cast out, but an important member of the house nonetheless in terms of his blood. Where does that leave the future of House Mormont? Here we stand, you know, indeed. Like, are they all gone? Are they all dead? We don't know. Yikes. Yeah. Dothraki, definitively all gone. The Unsullied, not a lot of them left. We've noted again how astonishing it is that Grey Worm is alive. On and the yet, front lines. Yes. The Dothraki, though. The living. The organizers of this battle failed the Dothraki. 
yes. by positioning them as they did. And the result is the wiping out of an entire culture, of a people off the known world. And there is a real, real tragedy at play here. The yes. richness and melding of cultures that are aligning Westerosi, free folk, Dothraki, and Unsullied could have forged is now basically gone. Yeah. At least Tormund is still there to keep the free folk in play, but the Unsullied are, I mean, we don't know how many are left. Not a lot. And the Dothraki are gone now. And that's tragic for this melting pot that was forging and that was so key to, I mean, her enemies used it against Annie, but ultimately it was a boon for her that she was representing so many different yeah. people and it had inspired so many different cultures to follow her. And of course, just for the Dothraki, this is an absolute tragedy. They're gone now. They never wanted They're to gone. sail across the poison water, and they did, and look what happened. And obviously, from a storytelling perspective, the intent was to get us to understand instantly how doomed everybody right. was, because basically the, the 27 Yankees were wiped out with right. one pitch. Right. But that's a savage storytelling choice. I agree. And I also think it speaks to a kind of, like, ruthlessness born of misunderstanding. I'm not saying John wouldn't have placed a purely northern cavalry in the same position as he did the Dothraki. But you have to at least ask the question, right? Mm -hmm. Would he do this if those were his people? Right. So where is Danny left now? Right. Because she just lost Jorah, her most trusted advisor. She lost the entire Dothraki horde. She lost a lot of the Unsullied. Grey Worm and Masandi, she doesn't know this, but basically just... <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> plan their escape. Beaches of Noth! <laughs> Making honeymoon plans. And they deserve it. They do, but... They gonna, deserve they it. They do, but Danny's not going to take it well. Tyrion, her hand, spent the battle with Sansa, Danny's foe, and has openly been getting dunked on by Danny all season before that. Fairly. And again, she gave John, who could end up on the other side of a rift with her in the next three episodes, one of her dragons. Which I gotta say, he is flying like an ace he once is. again. Yes, he, he looks great up there. We are definitely not giving Danny as much credit as we should be for the sacrifice that she made here. She actually did not have to do any of this. Yes. She didn't. It was the right thing, and she did it, and she deserves credit for that. And damn if she wasn't in there every fucking second of the fight, right. putting her own body in addition to all of her troops on the line. Yes. She is a hero and a warrior, but she's also now desperately depleted, heading into the battle against Cersei and whatever comes after. Mal, get down to the crypt. I'm not abandoning my podcast. Take this nugget and go. I don't know how to use it. Sticking with the pointy end of insights and observations, let's head to the sept. To bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of our favorite tidbits from this episode, lightning round style, I'll go first. Number one, RIP to so many theories in this episode, but strangely, one that always seemed far-fetched gained some steam. People seemed sure after this more than ever that the Night King was a Targaryen. Main reasons are the fact that his sign in episode one looked like a Targaryen sigil. Mm -hmm. The fact that he can ride a dragon, which the showrunners have said only Targs can. And the fact that he is immune to fire, as we saw when Drogon bathed him in flame. However, Dave Hill has said the sign, like Satan turning the cross, is intended to mock his creators, the children of the forest. He's riding a dragon, yes, but his dragon is dead, as are all of his followers. And the Targaryens aren't actually immune to fire. That is completely a show creation where Danny is concerned. As in the books, her emerging as the unburnt from Drogo's pyre was a one-time event spawned by magic, as George R. R. Martin has explained. And remember, John burned his hand in season one, and he's a Targaryen, albeit not a pure-blood Targ. Crucially, 
The timelines don't support this being possible. The Targaryens didn't sail to Westeros until a few hundred years before the events of the show, and the Night King was created by the children, as we saw in Bran's vision some six to 8,000 years ago. For more on this, check out my Ask the Maester column on theringer.com, a great website. Great fucking website. Number two. Now that the Dothraki are basically gone and the Unsullied drastically reduced and many northern houses extinct or in tatters, as we've outlined, John and Danny are in desperate need of reinforcements. Who can they call upon? They can't go face the 20,000-strong Golden Company with what's left after this war. They need new bodies. Here are some of the top contenders. First, Yara, obviously. This seems like a, a given. Next, Dario and the Second Sons. Is it time for Dario and Aharis to re-enter this story? Time for Danny to send for him? I would love to see Dario and John. Hell yeah. <laughs> interact. <laughs> Kate Hallowell. All she wants to see is Dario towering over John and giving him a fight. And by the way, that's heightest. I feel attacked by this. John is a, a fine man and a king. Dario is just a fucking sl- is slutting around the East with a woman dagger. Doing who knows what. He's got 15 different STDs. The box. The, surely has well, the box. What would Kyburn say about Dario's box? Uh, Oh, my. I've never seen such a case. <laughs> Remember, Danny's like a great many women is one of the greatest rejoinders in the show's history. I loved that so much. Who comes after you? A great many women. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right, who else? Hopefully, Mira Reed. Oh, I'd love to see it. And perhaps even Howland Reed. I feel good about Mira. I think we'll see Mira. I really hope so. What about Dorn, as we know, the foreign invasion in Yara's pants and when Euron attacked them was underway, and so the fleet never made it to Dorne to pick up the soldiers. There's an army there. Plus, if they're heading to King's Landing, perhaps they could actually spring Ilaria from the dungeons and Dorne would rally behind her. Right. Those Dorne spearmen are just waiting there for the boats still. Just waiting. Nymeria? And her uh, wolf pack in the I'm, Riverlands. I'm going on the record right now as it's gotta saying happen. we're seeing a wolf pack portion of a battle. It has got to happen. Protect Ghost of Nymeria at all costs. While we're at it, I would just assume that Hot Pie tag along. Sweet Robin, anyone who's guarding him in the Vale? <laughs> what about the Tullys? All those forces who were holding Riverrun before Edmure mm-hmm. turned it over. Those are fighting men. Join the fight. It's time. And listen, technically, I mean, fuck them forever. They abandoned John twice. They abandoned the Starks twice. But the Glovers are out there. I'm sorry, but the Glovers need to be pulled out of their keep root and stem, and you turned it over to one of their vassals. It's enough with the fucking Glovers. And also Deepwood Mott, as I said, it sucks. It's a shitty fucking castle. Get this guy out of here. Good segue into the next item. Number three, speaking of the Glovers, can we assume that that cowardly house survived intact because the Night King's path from Eastwatch to Last Hearth to Winterfell wouldn't have taken his forces westward past Deepwood Mott. But plenty of other northern houses have vanished over the last few years, leaving castles without a lord. The Dreadfort, once held by the Boltons, Last Hearth, once held by the Umbers, Bear Island, held by the Mormonts, and we believe Carhold, held by the Karstarks, RIP maybe to Alice Karstark. That's plenty of open castles, and we hope Bronn takes one as his long search for a wife and castle continues. And then he doesn't opt to kill Jamie and Tyrion. Of course, Bronn doesn't seem like he likes cold, <laughs> given his taste for Dornish ladies. <laughs> but there are open castles in Dorn too. Just pick one and please put that crossbow away. Please. Number four. Every Thrones viewer has individual celebrations or laments about each episode. And Cersei, of course, will never get over the absence of the elephants. One thing. One thing seems universal. 
despondence over the absence of Ice Spider's biggest hounds. I mean, where were they? <laughs> I'm about to tell you. The mammoth creatures obviously play a key role in Old Nan's bedtime horror stories for Bran. Fabled beasts that the White Walkers used to do their bidding. Fans got even more hyped for what seemed like the sure appearance of the Ice Spiders in season eight when George R. R. Martin unveiled an illustration of them in a tweet about the 2020 A Song of Ice and Fire calendar. Alas, showrunners told Entertainment Weekly that they briefly discussed the possibility but quickly opted against it because they were worried they wouldn't be able to render them in a convincing way. Quote, Ice spiders sound good, DBY said. Of course it, of course they do. They sound fucking dope, <laughs> my, my, my man. It would look good on a metal album cover, but once they start moving, what does an ice spider look like? Probably doesn't look great. Can I introduce you to Aragog? Or Shelob? What are we doing here, guys? <laughs> <laughs> Number five. Can we talk about how much Vladimir Furtick, the actor who plays the Night King, gave away in his EW interview? Amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing in hindsight. Quote, amazing. People will see he has a target he wants to kill, and you will find out who that is. There's also a moment in Hardhome, when Jon Snow was on the boat and the Night King looked at him and raised his arms, there's a similar and even stronger moment between Jon and the Night King this time. Vladimir, why don't you fucking stay kissing horses full on the lips with tongue and everything and not giving interviews? Look that picture up. You can find it on Instagram and various social media platforms. Um, he also said, quote, I think he wants revenge. Everybody in this story has two sides, a bad side and a good side. The Night King only has one side, a bad side. Minus the Dragonfire immunity and who kills him and, and when. This is everything you need to know about the Night King in season eight. The entire plot it minus. to give away the store. It's unbelievable. Vlad! <laughs> <laughs> Very tough tough look for my guy, Vlad. Vlad! (laughs) (laughs) Number six. In the game revealed, there was a nugget that, while we had heard it before, including in a Joanna Robinson piece uh, about the Arya Brienne sparring session in season seven and a 2011 TV guide piece in the early days of the Thrones experience, it was never more apt than on Sunday night. Maisie Williams, who plays Arya Stark, is actually right-handed, but learned to fight left-handed to play Arya because Arya's left-handed in the books. And according to David Benioff, she became an ambidextrous fighter over the course of filming the show and all of these training regimens, which perfectly positioned her to execute the fateful scene with the Night King. Very cool. Ben Simmons right now just went, yeah, guys. (laughs) That's right. Number seven, heading into the battle, the show made no secret of the fact that this would be the longest battle sequence ever shown on TV. And all that fighting required copious preparation. According to a preseason EW feature, the cast and crew worked 11 straight weeks of night filming. Ian Glenn said they'd go to sleep at seven in the morning and wake up at midday Mm. alone in his bunk, pining for the warm Mm. form of a Mallory Rubin to be next to him. (laughs) Only. (laughs) And the cast alone numbered 750 people, let alone the giant size of the crew. All this came with temperatures in the low 30s, freezing rain, peppering the sets. Seems like the production team's long night lasted longer than the one in the show. Jason. Yes. What do we say to the god of podcasts? Not today! We will tell him today's winner. Because each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game, advance their cause in some tangible way. This week... The tough winner one. of our championship so is 
Arya Stark dun, of dun, Winterfell. Dun. A girl killed the Night King. I mean, incredible. Well, it's not understated. She saved the world. She got a lot of help, of course. Real team effort. But she dealt the decisive blow that dropped the entire army. Yes. Incredible stealth, speed, agility, and poise. A Like Bob Beeman level jump. <laughs> the hand switch. And she passed along her lessons inwards to Sansa. It was the culmination of all these various threads that have been in motion since season one for Arya. A girl found balance. Yeah. Simultaneously rediscovering her humanity and returning home to save her family and the world and maximizing her training, proving once again That's right. one of the show's central themes. You do not have to choose. Arya's faceless man training is a part of who she is. But she isn't no one. She's Arya Stark. The Arya a few seasons ago puts Melisandre down right where she saw her for what she did to Gendry, not pausing to see the big picture. This Arya Stark is more mature, is willing to see the bigger picture and understand that even if she doesn't like someone, they might be necessary for the larger fight. And is she the last hero, as are a hive? She's certainly the savior of our narrative right now. Also, you mentioned Gendry. Uh-oh. Listen, she got Arya killed the Night King and had sex for the first time in the same night. Incredible. Incredible! What were you doing when you were 18? Having sex and not saving the world. <laughs> All right, friends. Witty remarks won't make a difference. As we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, we hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to continue this journey, and that you'll join us again next week for season eight, episode four, where Cersei and Kyburn. Kyburn! Oh, wait. Also, reminder, please join us live on Thursday for a mid-season Talk the Throne special. 4 Pacific, 7 Eastern. Till next time, remember, everything you did brought you where you are now, where you belong, with Binge Mode. Hey, Mike, this is not from Maria. I thought about the liking today. Yeah, you see the Battle of Winterfell went down up there a long night after 6,000 years. The Night King finally uh, showing up to kill the Three-Eyed Raven. This guy's the number one seed. We've been hearing about him for so many years. He can raise the dead. And then he's a fucking stiff, Mike. Mike, you're at the 10-yard line, and the touchdown is right there. Why don't you pep your step up, Mike? Put a pep in your step. This guy runs the slowest 40-yard I've ever seen. He walked the whole way up there, and then he just stared. It took, like, five years to take his sword out and let the little girl stab in the chest, Mike. And what do you think about it, Mike? I'll take my hands off the air. Thank you.